Guess what, ghouls and goblins? The Spook Boys have officially joined Patreon. That's right, baby. The show as you know it will remain the same, ad-free, but our patrons will have exclusive access to bonus content. Interviews, franchise deep dives, even horror television. Wait, did you say television? You heard right, Sally. Becoming a patron means you're not only helping us keep the show running, but that it also remains available on all platforms, and again, ad-free. For more details, head on over to patreon.com, where you can become an official member of the Spoop Troop today. Today is a good day to podcast. You bring the recording equipment. I'll bring my balls. Hell yeah. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast hosted by me, your movie monster boy, Aaron, and my cowardly co-host, Derek, in which we dissect the fears, phobias, and social relevancy of horror movies across all ages and subgenres, as well as discuss just how scary they are for horror newbies and horror junkies alike. Once again, we welcome back Dr. Jeff. Hello, fellow interns. Where we're going to be discussing Flatliners from 1990. A totally medically sound horror movie. Too, I cannot sure. fucking wait to hear y'all's takes <laughs> on this, by the way. So this is going to be fun. How are you doing, Jeff? Doing good. Doing great. Good to see you guys again. Awesome. Well, yeah, we are going to start up this episode just like every other, where we are going to discuss a couple of recommendations we might have. So any other horror-related movies, TV shows, books, video games, comics, whatever, doesn't matter. And like usual, we will always start with our guest. So Jeff, do you have anything horror-related that you would like to talk about? You know, recently, other than getting back into some creepypasta, which I, I couldn't even tell you which ones I was listening to, the most frightening thing I've listened to recently was catching up on the most recent last podcast on the left episodes, the Gilderay episodes. Ah, I have yeah, not started yeah, yeah. that series yet. I'm waiting oh for it to be done. Gosh. They're pretty good. Oh my gosh. There could be so many movies made off of this man's life. So many just legit, terrible horror movies. Yeah. There have been a couple. I had no idea about his ties to Joan of Arc either. Yeah, That's crazy. So the one main one that I know of, there is one called The Messenger. That has Mia Jovovich in it as Joan of Arc. It really centers on her, but Vincent Cassell from Irreversible and a shit ton of other things, he is playing Gidirai or whatever his name is. Is is there a movie where he isn't playing the villain? Kind of Ocean's <laughs> Twelve. <laughs> yeah, right. He's a foil. I've said for years, he's my like top pick to play fucking Doctor Doom once they get him into the MCU. But uh. I know that there's that movie that exists at least, but yeah, Jeff, I hadn't started that series yet. I'm itching to because everybody seems to be buzzing about it. Mm -hmm. I'm just waiting for it to be done before I start. Yeah, well, I, th I think it finished. I think it just finished up, if I'm not mistaken. I think it's only a three-parter. Okay, gotcha. I could be wrong. And speaking of, because of that, Henry Zabrowski was talking about that Jared Fogel documentary, and so I bought that the other day and was going through that. Another just just horrifying thing. Woofa yeah. doofa. Oh my gosh, <laughs> this is just real life horror. 
Jared Vogel, what a monster. Let's see. Yeah. Both of them monsters to children specifically, too, yes. by the way. Yes. I do deep dives into the lore of really stupid horror-related stuff. Like, you, you know the, the back rooms? I'm sure you know about the back rooms, all that stuff. We've Dude, talked we about brought the back rooms, the back rooms, rooms quite though, a yeah. bit. Yep. Everybody <laughs> yeah, is kind of I, finally starting to discover that. Yeah, I just remember when it first came out back in the day, that one green text, and then it just sprawled mm-hmm. out. But now the lore, I don't know if you've read about the deep lore, the back rooms, about the company going to this alternate dimension to fight the population problems mm-hmm. where people can live in an alternate dimension and travel to work back and forth and stuff. Real wild stuff. Yep. Kane Pixels on YouTube has been doing a ton of videos about that. Yes. He's now with, was it James Wan? Who, who got linked up with him to start developing? James Wan is producing, but I think he's working producing. with Blumhouse specifically yeah. to make like a movie adaptation of it. Yeah. Or at least his take on it. I saw the new Flatliners because I wanted to just see how it compared. It was a slightly more medically accurate, slightly, but otherwise... Surprising. Surprising. Um, it was, I think, the guy who did Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, I think he was the director. The director is Niels Arden Oplov, and yeah, I, I think you're correct. Yeah, he did the Swedish version of Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Yeah, it was a bunch of Scandinavian people that did this one, and... It was not good. I, I really liked the original Flatliners. It wasn't the worst movie I've ever seen, the new one, but it was not really worth seeing, in my opinion. And I have started on the Silver Globe, the one that you uh, recommended. I started that in the bathtub this morning, and um, it's it's trippy. Not horror specifically, but it's just fucking mind-bending. It's strange. Yeah. It's strange. It's very, very <laughs> interesting. There is a new official blu-ray of it that is about to come out from bfi i want to say or eureka i can't remember they're basically putting out his polish trilogy and because that is a movie that is incomplete and will never be completed there's only so much you can do with that i am curious to see a version of it that has subtitles that make better sense i guess yeah but the entire idea of it is fucking cuckoo bananas and it just looks like a nightmare the entire thing it does look like a nightmare it does look like a nightmare this summer you know that stupid language that i study esperanto i'm going to a congress (laughs) where everyone only speaks that and there's a filmmaker there who um he's going to be debuting several horror horror shorts that are all in esperanto i've seen he's from georgia i've seen some of his stuff and he has some interesting ideas but we'll see how that turns out so that's me yeah very curious about this conference you're going to that sounds wild cool Derek. what have you got bear with me listeners and you guys your boy didn't get much sleep last night because i foolishly uh i used to be able to do this pretty well in my 20s not so much in my 30s i stayed up kind of late playing uh resident evil 4 remake once again i'm not gonna get into details about it because <laughs> yeah i'm not gonna get into details about it i'm keep an eye on our patreon there may be a, a, a full breakdown of of it once i beat it on there again patreon.com forward slash watch there it's only five dollars a month to get bonus episodes but 10 out of 10 game perfect you already know that i've really only had time besides resident evil 4 remake as far as horror goes i really only had time to watch a movie and i watched this movie because i put it on my tubi list a while ago and i got an email from tubi saying hey this is leaving tubi it sucks that i'm recommending this now uh, but I'm sure you can find it somewhere. It probably left Tubi because it's it's now going to be in other areas of streaming. And so I decided to watch this, and it's another obscure slasher. I'm back on my bullshit where I'm like watching cult classic, underrated 80s slasher movies. 
And this one is from 1981. It is called Happy Birthday to Me. Someone's having a party for the top ten. The senior class snobs. Before they get to celebrate, six of them will die in the most bizarre ways you'll ever see. It is up to you to determine whether you wish to subject yourself to fear, terror, and shock. Because of the bizarre nature of this birthday party, pray you are not invited. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I actually just watched that again recently. I'm surprised I did not bring that up on recommendations. Yeah, so cool. I don't know why I didn't. So yeah, we. I just recently watched that as well. It is directed by J. Lee Thompson. Yep. It stars Melissa Sue Anderson and Glenn Ford. I, you know, I've watched a chunk of these 80s lesser known slasher movies. I wouldn't say I liked it as much as say like House on Sorority Row or even Curtains, even though Curtains is a fucking mess of a movie. I really dug Curtains, but I would still put it above pieces like we just did with Nwacky on our past episode. I'd put it above that fucking movie with the person in the bear mascot. Girls Night Out. Girls Night Out, yeah. Which besides the beginning and ending of that movie was kind of a disappointment. So I think it's worth a watch for slasher and horror completionists. There is some interesting things in regard to status because it it follows the top 10 of this elite academy. The top 10 are like the most privileged and popular students. And they're all kind of selfish shitheads in their own ways. But they're also kind of just kids as well. Some of them kind of deserve their fate. Some of them don't. And I found that kind of fascinating that not all of them were like totally shitty. The movie is trying to say something about identity. This is probably definitely more serious than a blood rage when it comes to identity. Speaking of Jeff, you were on one of our past blood rage episodes. I generally kind of liked the reveal at the end as to who the actual slasher is. Yeah, this is still kind of fairly early on in slashers like 1981. I don't know when did Friday the 13th original one came out come out because like this was May 1981. Most people by that time between Halloween and Friday the 13th, they have an idea in their head of a hulking monster with a mask and really the slasher in this movie is kind of different than that it kind of honestly reminded me of a little bit of the slasher and alice sweet alice which jeff you need to go watch alice sweet alice because that is a 1976 horror movie slasher and it's like one of the earlier slasher movies there is a ton of religious imagery in that one it was originally called communion Okay. Oh, I th- I've heard of this. Brooke Shields. Okay. I see. I've got it pulled up. Yeah. Alice Sweet Alice is kind of one of those predates Halloween slashers that is actually pretty good. And I wish more people knew about it. Kind of like the original Black Christmas. And granted, I don't think this movie, Happy Birthday to Me, is quite as good, but it still is trying to do something. It's not just trying to be a clone of Giallo films or Friday the 13th. It is trying to at least kind of stand on its own. There's some inconsistencies in the movie. Like one character straight up fucking disappears from the movie, not killed off, <laughs> yeah, just like bye. disappears. There's 10 of them, but really only I think six of them are killed off. And so like it kind of is up in the air what happens to the rest of them. But yeah, the ending is kind of sweet. I actually like really dug the ending of this movie. It is genuinely pretty fucked up given the circumstances of what's going on. It's not any more or less scary than most slashers i'd say halloween is a lot scarier than this movie 
but there's still a couple good scares, mostly false jump scares, and the kills are pretty fun. I mean, this is not spoiling anything because it's literally the fucking movie poster. Yeah. One guy gets a <laughs> shish kebab fork stuck into his mouth and like through his neck. That one's pretty fun. But yeah, it just follows this girl who is one of the more popular high school seniors, which it's fucking wild that they're high school students because they definitely act, look and act like college students in this movie. It's kind of her dealing with this accident that happened to her. She went into a coma and lost her memory for a while. She doesn't know if she's the one actually killing off her friends because she has these blackout moments. Her friends just kind of wind up going missing or dead in the top 10. And it's just kind of them getting picked off one by one while like the hysteria around the school starts building up around their disappearances. And the movie does a decent job at actually kind of keeping you on the hook a little bit about whether or not it is her or is not her. A lot of times with these kind of movies, like it's pretty fucking obvious who the red herring is. Again, pieces that we just covered. It's kind of obvious in that movie, like who is and is not potentially the killer. This movie does a pretty good job with that. And I like the relationship that she has with Glenn Ford kind of back and forth. Now, it kind of borders a little bit on being too personal of a relationship, considering he is like (laughs) her psychiatrist, therapist, whatever we want to call it, just from a professional ethics standpoint, but also like she's a high schooler, right? But the relationship, it doesn't feel icky, I don't think. It never crosses the line. It feels more fatherly. But I I like that they kind of have that, because that's also very unusual for this kind of movie. But yeah, there's some interesting kills in this movie. There's definitely a lot of character actors that you've seen in a million other things that show up, so it's fun. And it's interesting that she was in this role, like in this kind of horror movie, because this was seemed like it was at the height of at least her TV popularity, because I know she had a big role on Little House on the Prairie. Yeah. It was like nominated for an Emmy and everything. During all of that, she is genuinely like fun to watch. Like, she's just a good actress and like a fun slasher protagonist. And again, I I really dug who the antagonist turns out to be. I'm not going to give away who it is, but again, it is not your prototypical slasher that you think of. And anytime one of these movies does this, Curtains does this, Alice Sweet Alice does this, where it turns out to be someone kind of unassuming, I really appreciate that. Also has a lot to say about family dynamics, surprisingly enough, but kind of like House on Story Row, Alice, Sweet Alice, etc. This would be one of those obscure slashers I could see us doing a full episode on. I think it's worth it. So yeah, like if you want to kind of go off the beaten path of slasher movies, slasher completionists, horror completionists, you haven't seen this, give this a watch. It's worth a watch. At this time, like I said, it's off Tubi now, but I'm sure you can find it other places. I will say this about Tubi. I get those emails of this is leaving soon, this is leaving soon, and somehow most everything seems to just stay on there. Oh, does there it really? There have been very few cases where the stuff actually leaves for a significant period of time, and frankly, something like Happy Birthday to Me, that just came out on a new Blu-ray from Kino. I'm pretty sure I saw it on Shutter. It will be available somewhere, somehow or another, so I don't think you should have trouble finding this one. There is a page for it on Tubi, but it's currently unavailable, so it probably will come back to Tubi eventually. You can rent it for a few bucks pretty much most other places, like on Apple TV, Vudu, etc., Amazon Prime. So yeah, it, it's around. It's readily available, and that's all I got. All right, cool. So I've been in a mode the last couple of episodes where I'm not really sure what to watch when it comes to horror stuff. 
not to say that there's not stuff I want to watch. It's more just what am I in the mood for? What do I have time for? Frankly, there's just more non-horror stuff right now that my brain is interested in at the moment. What I've been doing to make this a little bit easier on myself is going through the filmography of whatever director, writer, star for the episode that we're covering and just finding something else in their filmography if they have anything else horror related. So I did that for this episode and I actually found two pretty interesting options. So first one I'll mention, I am definitely a little bit of an apologist for Joel Schumacher. And we'll get more into that when we start talking about flatliners. Do I think he is most creative, amazing, deep director? No, right? No. But he is incredibly stylish. He's a pretty solid technician. Dude makes movies that look fucking wild. You can't look at his Batman and Robin movies and not be like, what the fuck is this, right? That's why I like Flatliners so, so much. Oh my god, the stylization. Yes, and we will definitely like talk that in a minute too, for sure. That's going to be where a lot of the discussion comes. But Schumacher is one of those directors where he had a pretty solid run of bangers. So he started with The Incredible Shrinking Woman and DC Cab, which are both bananas fucking movies. But St. Elmo's Fire is where things started to pop. Because he had that hot Brat Pack cast in this movie that hit the pop culture at kind of just the right place. He literally did the same exact thing with the Lost Boys, but added in the like Amblin kids on bikes element and a little bit of the Goonies element, right? And then he does this movie, Flatliners. But then he did Falling Down and The Client, right? When all the John Grisham shit was happening. Obviously, he did Batman Forever. Time to Kill, Batman and Robin, 8mm with Nick Cage, which is a fucking off-the-wall, wow, you took a fucking right turn, going from Batman and Robin, which is one of the goofiest fucking movies ever made, to 8mm, which is Nick Cage tracking down the veracity of a fucking snuff film. So he has like a very interesting run, but 8mm is where I fucking fall off. There's a couple of oddball things, like... I've seen Phone Booth, the one where Colin Farrell is in a phone booth, and he's talking <laughs> to Kiefer Sutherland, who, you know, has a gun trained on all these people in this New York street. Very interesting premise, written by Larry Cohen, that we've discussed in the show a couple times. But, like, the only other big thing of note that he made in the last 20 years was that Phantom of the Opera movie. He did the number 23 with Jim Carrey, the movie where he's like of that movie. obsessed yeah. with numerology, right? That movie is yep. bad. And that movie tanked. Joel Schumacher made uh, Phantom of the Opera? Yeah. The one with, um, what's her name? The Gerard Butler one. Really? Yep. Yeah. Emmy Rossum, Gerard Butler. Uh, no. yeah. yeah, Emmy Rossum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What the hell? Yep. So number 23 tanked. Big. And then he came back with this movie called Blood Creek from 2009. In 1936... A stranger came to Town Creek. We were told you were a historian. On a quest for an ancient stone. They were here, our ancestors, and all their gods. That possessed the power of life. Bring that here to me. And death. When you rule the blood, death is no longer the end. Put it in our 
mother. I was 12 when he came to our farm. He needed blood for the ritual, so he froze us in time like this. He can't come into the house. It's a painting on the doors and the windows. Keep him out. We had him contained until he came here. We're all going to pay for this now. Just tell me how to kill him. Once his third eye is released to cross off, nothing will be able to contain him, not even the ruins. which is a straight-up, balls-to-the-wall fucking horror movie. It is maybe more of a fucking horror movie than anything else he's made, which is wild considering he made this movie, Flatliners, that we're talking about, and The Lost Boys. So this is, again, 2009. It stars Henry Cavill, before anybody really knew him, Dominic Purcell, Mr. John Doe himself. Um, I know he has been in like a lot of the DC CW shows and shit like that lately. He's fucking Dracula in Blade 3, right? And then Michael Fassbender. And this was the same year that Michael Fassbender's in Inglorious Bastards, like right as he's kind of hitting. This movie is, and this is all like literally the first five minutes, so I'm not like giving away the entire plot. Just on the cusp of World War II happening, a handful of like occult specialists are sent from Germany to America to these specific spots on the East Coast where there are Nordic runestones and they're sent to, like, learn their fucking secrets. Because, of course, Hitler is obsessed with the occult. And so the whole deal is like, oh, yeah, Vikings fucking discovered North America way before Columbus. And they left these runestones as these markers for them if they ever came back or whatever. So Michael Fassbender plays a fucking like Nazi occult specialist who comes over here, stays with this German family on their farm where they found one of these runestones. Cut forward to modern day. Henry Cavill is like an EMT. His brother, Dominic Purcell, has been missing for two fucking years. Nobody knows what happened to him. They disappeared on a camping trip and things are fucked, right? Well, guess what? He just shows back up long hair, disheveled, fucked up, and is like, I'm back, don't ask questions, get fucking guns, get your medical bag, don't fucking tell anybody where we're going, get your camping gear, come with me. And they go on this fucking mission to this farm where he had been captured and held for like two years and tortured. And what you find out is the original fucking German family is still there. They are essentially immortal, and they have realized, oh, this all went fucking bad really quickly. We should have known better. The Nazi fucking occult expert is now this undead fucking zombie demon blood magic thing that is being kept on their farm so that he will not escape. That's the setup, and things kind of go from there. It is not the deepest fucking movie. It's pretty simple once it gets going as far as where it's going, and you can kind of guess every fucking turn, but There is enough weird shit that I was really kind of pulled in and intrigued by this. It's very Hellboy, Indiana Jones, that level weirdness, but with insane fucking hardcore gore and makeup and brutal as fuck kills. There is like an insane intensity to the movie in that regard. And the biggest thing that I'll say about it in its favor 
there are real animals. There are real horses. There's a scene where, like, a fucking zombie horse breaks into the house and is attacking them, and they're just unloading rounds into this fucking horse trying to get it to go down. It's a real horse. You can tell it's a real horse. They didn't just CGI this shit. There's fire all throughout this movie, and it's real fire. They didn't just CGI that shit. Tons and tons of gore that is practical, makeup that is practical. Again, you can tell they fucking did the shit for real, and it's not CGI. It's wild that this was such a low-budget movie. And I say low, again, this is Schumacher rebounding from the number 23, which was a huge failure. So I have no idea what the budget for this was. I couldn't find a budget. But it was not a big budget. But it's insane how good this movie looks in every way, shape, and form compared to the kind of shit that we get now as Netflix original horror movies where everything is fucking CGI. And I try my best not to be that fucking grumpy old dude on here who like just complains about, oh, the good old days where everything was practical. But let's be real. Most of the shit that's on Netflix now looks like dog shit. (laughs) I'm tired of seeing fake fire and fake blood squibs when people get shot and fake CGI blood when people's heads get chopped. I'm sick of seeing CGI animals. I'm just tired of all the fake shit. This movie feels tangible and grounded. And again, it's about like the most kooky bullshit. But that, I think, propelled me through this movie, despite it being, at the end of the day, pretty predictable in terms of where it goes and everything else. And I will say this movie 1000% sets itself up for a fucking awesome franchise that never materialized. This could have gone in some really fucking cool directions. This movie just completely flew under the radar. It got a like super, super limited release. I remember hearing about this movie when it came out because I remember it just showing up on the internet and being like, what the fuck is this? And I watched this years ago. I want to say I watched this with Lamplu, who's been on the show a couple times, and it just passed out of my head at the time. And I maybe didn't even pay attention to the fact that it was Schumacher. Now it feels like a fucking breath of fresh air, though, considering all the low budget stuff we've seen the last couple of years. That is just, again, nothing but fucking CGI. I was fucking impressed by it. I would definitely recommend checking it out. Sure. Blood Creek 2009, directed by Joel Schumacher. It might be the last good movie that he made. Other thing I'll note is it was written by David Kazganich. His crew started off kind of rocky. He wrote that version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers just called The Invasion with Nicole Kidman and Daniel Craig. And he did The Terror for AMC, which I fucking love that book and that show was awesome. But since then, he's kind of become Luca Guadagnino's go-to writer. He wrote A Bigger Splash and Suspiria, the remake, and Bones and All that we just talked about recently that I fucking love. Both of those. Yeah. So that guy wrote this movie. So, yeah, definitely worth checking out. I would very much recommend this. The premise of this movie is really fascinating to me. We were talking about the Resident Evil 4 remake. This sounds like the plot of a horror action video game. Oh, it feels that way. This could 100% just end up being a horror video game because you get this initial prologue where you're getting like, the shit that happened in the 30s that's setting up the movie, and then it jumps forward. But then it's just kind of these two brothers with fucking shotguns in hand going onto this farm, 
and then kind of finding out bit by bit what's happened. I mean, it very much unfolds like a video game. It feels like something you could play 100%. It feels like that. It feels like a video game adaptation movie for a video game that never existed. Well, and Fassbender as an undead Nazi occult hell being sounds kind of fucking wild. It's pretty rad, yeah. And again, it's just wild to see him and Henry Cavill before they were super well-known. This was kind of right as they were both breaking. Shea Wiggum is also in this, so it's right around the time that he was starting to pop. Yeah, very, very interesting. Other thing I'll bring up, I was very curious about the writer of Flatliners. At first, I was like, okay, I don't recognize this name. What else has he directed? Peter Filardi. Oh, he did The Craft? Cool. I know that movie. I've seen that movie a ton. And then that's kind of it. There's not a whole lot else he's done. Now, there is a movie in 2000 called Ricky Six. And immediately I was like, okay, that sounds like something I know. What is this? Kelly's father sent her upstate to live with her grandparents. For weeks, Rick and I laughed about the whole thing. Other times we cry like babies, punch trees, smash windows. We didn't sell acid or mask anymore. We used it all ourselves. Okay, Zoo's up for Mike's party. I'm going. Me and Tommy ain't doing that. Yeah, I think my invitation got lost in the mail. Doesn't matter. We got better things to do anyway. <laughs> like California? <laughs> Anyone who thinks Mike and his parents can throw a better party than me can just go ahead. How about you, Tweez? You going? I might, I might check it out. <laughs> Too bad, man. <laughs> Why? What, what, are, what are you guys up to? <laughs> I don't know, about 10,000 feet. Cruising <laughs> altitude, baby. <laughs> you guys are so fucking weird. I mean, one minute you're beating each other up, the next minute you're sucking off the same joint. Ah, <laughs> uh, Tweez stole from me. We're both Satanists, so I don't consider that a betrayal. It's human nature to steal. So does that mean he has to pay you back, or what? <laughs> nah, he says he will, right, Tweez? You'll pay me back. Yeah, yeah. That's it. Then again, it's human nature to lie. Oh. I said they were fucked up. Well, no, it's all right. Tweez was a good oh, little yeah. Satanist. Uh, right, Tweez? Nice. So mote it be. <laughs> so mote it be. <laughs> this was a movie that he wrote and directed that is about the murder committed by Ricky Casso in the 1980s that was the big fucking murder that set off all the fucking satanic panic. That's what that is. Okay. Anti-metal, yep. anti-drugs. I know exactly who you're talking about now. That whole big fucking thing exploded with this particular case that occurred in the like Long Island area. This movie is a telling of that story. Obviously, like the names have changed, so it's not Ricky Casso, it's Ricky Cowan or whatever. And they changed some of the details. I mean, for all intents and purposes, the worst thing I'll say about the movie is I think it feels a lot like a lifetime kind of scare movie from the 90s. It very much feels like a TV movie and it feels way dated for it being a 2000 era movie. Like you have to kind of retrain your brain when you see stuff from the early 2000s because it's really still kind of the late 90s. That doesn't make sense, but that does make sense, if you know what I mean. Kind of like the early 90s still just feels like the late 80s 
to a degree. Like the fashion that hasn't quite fully evolved yet. The music hasn't fully evolved. The look of TV and movies hasn't fully evolved yet. So that's the worst thing I'll say, I guess, is it's very melodramatic. It's very Lifetime movie. It's very, these kids are into Satanism and drugs. And d they listen to <laughs> metal. So it's very that. It stars Vincent Kartheiser, who most people will recognize from Mad Men. He's like one of the main people in that show. I haven't watched Mad Men yet. That's on our list of shit to get around. So I don't know like what character that is. Chad Christ, who is in Gattaca and Jawbreaker, is in this as kind of his best friend kind of cohort. Emmanuel Creaky is in this from Detroit Rock City, Wrong Turn and Entourage. Patrick Renna, who is the chubby ginger kid from The Sandlot and Big Green, is in this. This is like one of the only other movies I've seen him in. And fucking Kevin Gage from Heat. The guy that plays fucking Wayne Grow. Yeah, I just had to get it on. I had to get it on, man. I had to get it on, man. He was making a move. I had to get it on. That guy plays this fucking crazy hobo Satanist named Pat Pagan that just hangs around the park with these kids, right? What you doing, Rick? Taking a dive? That's one way to meet the man. Fuck him! Fuck him to hell! I gave him everything! Everything I had packed, I got nothing in return! What do you want? I want the power I was promised! I want control of my life! Control of your life? I don't know, Rick. Satan's a big man. What the fuck you thinking? He's just gonna stop by and party with a bunch of stone kids for a bottle of cheap wine? Hell no! He's an important man. He's gonna take a lot more than that. It's like in the Bible. Them Christians, they drink their wine. What do you think that stands for? Blood. You're goddamn right, blood. And plenty of it. That's what we gave him in the Nam. <laughs> Pat, Pat Pagan. Pagan. Pat Pagan. And that's one of the few things that they like actually held over from real life. That's the name that the actual guy was named. So on the fucking nose. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. on the nose. Well, his name was also like Grandpa Death and Father Time. He had like all these dumb nicknames. Well, didn't Ricky Casso also have weird fucking nicknames too? Like getting to that, yeah. So this movie is an American-Canadian-Mexican co-production. It played at Fantastic Fest in 2000, and it won like an audience award. It has never officially been released since, at all. No theatrical, no TV, no official VHS or DVD, anything. It just did not get released. That said, you can watch the whole thing on YouTube. It is totally there if you look for Ricky 6, and that's the numeral 6. Yeah, I'm not surprised by that. <laughs> I have a very strong feeling the reason this movie didn't officially come out is because of music rights. Because again, these kids are listening to fucking metal, man. So like, off the top of my head, I remember hearing Van Halen, Dio, and Iron Maiden. There's no fucking way that this little tiny indie movie like cleared the rights for that. That's probably what's holding this movie up from getting officially released. The other thing I'll note is... 
This was shot by Rodrigo Prieto, who is a three-time Oscar-nominated cinematographer. This was like one of his first movies. He shot a couple of Inuritu's early movies, like Amoris Peros, 21 Grams, Babel, Beautiful. He shot 25th Hour for Spike Lee. He did 8 Mile. He did Frida. He did Brokeback Mountain and Lust Caution for Ang Lee. He did Argo. And now he seems to be Scorsese's go-to guy because he did Wolf of Wall Street, Silence, The Irishman, and is currently the DP for Killers of the Flower Moon, which is supposed to finally come out this fucking year. Oh, but take it a step further. And then he fucking shot Barbie for Greta Gerwig. (laughs) I'm Werner Herzog, and this is... The guy who fucking lensed Barbie and Killers of the Flower Moon, both of which are going to be massive fucking hits this year. That guy fucking shot this weird melodrama satanic panic movie from 2000 written and directed by the guy that wrote Flatliners. That has never officially seen the light of day. Wild shit. Dude, I am hoping and praying, by the way, with the Barbie movie, that the teasers definitely leave the door open. And I would fucking love if everyone goes into that Barbie movie and it takes a almost Tim and Eric-esque kind of weird UHF turn where people are not expecting it. I don't think it's going to take that hard of a fucking weird anti-comedy turn. Probably not. But but I would love that. But this Barbie is co-written with Noah Baumbach. I mean, he and Greta Gerwig were married for a while. I would venture to say it's probably going to be similar in tone to White Noise that Noah Baumbach put out this past year on Netflix, which was an adaptation of a Don DeLillo novel where it's the 1980s and there is literally the toxic cloud event coming and everybody's fucking paranoid and weird, but there's a super artificiality and detached weirdness to that movie. That is the tone I'm expecting from Barbie. A hundred percent. That is the tone I'm expecting from Barbie. Anyway, (laughs) that led me to this documentary that is about the real life case. And it was interesting to see how different the real-life shit was for this story compared to this movie that Peter Filardi made. So the documentary is called The Acid King, and it's from 2019. It was directed by Dan Jones and Jesse Pollock. Yeah, Acid King rules the band, that is. <laughs> well, you just wait. You just wait. Yeah, I know I know Acid King is based off of this guy. Yes, okay. So that that's part yeah. of where I was going. This is on Tubi, so you can watch this for free. It is totally ready to go. It's where I checked it out. This is about the real life case. 
you find out, oh, this fucking boy was not just your regular suburban kid, kind of bullied, kind of an outcast, kind of became Mr. Cool Guy once he started saying that he was a Satanist and like doing drugs and then kind of found his ragtag group of friends and they all cut up in the park at night. And then one day he just did too much drugs, man. And like killed this other kid that they knew who took drugs from them one time and didn't pay them. And he just did too much, man. And like went off the edge. No, it's way more fucked up in a variety of ways than like the melodrama that Ricky six kind of makes it into. Right. So like, first of all, this was not a kid who just had a regular home life. He was functionally fucking homeless from like seventh grade on. Wow. His stepdad was just like, fuck you, you piece of shit. Get out of my house. Seventh grade. Think about where you were in seventh grade. Now you're just fucking homeless because your dad's a dick. This kid was sleeping in the park and abandoned buildings and literally sleeping on shipping pallets behind a dumpster. Fucked, right? Obviously, this kid has no way to get money, so he starts selling drugs, gets way deep into drugs. And we're not talking like pot. We're not even talking quite acid, despite his nickname being the Acid King. He was doing fucking angel dust and mescaline. Like, he was doing the fucking hard dissociative stuff. Uh, Jeff, you know a lot about psychology. You know a lot about psychotropics, yeah. How does that fuck your brain <laughs> what angel dust yeah angel dust fucking mescaline if you're just pounding that shit 24 7 and you're 14 and you're homeless that's gotta do some shit for you right well seeing as i've treated a lot of these people and also experimented with plenty of it myself let's see i'll tell you when people start that young both with traditional psychedelics and with cannabis which is not even a psychedelic really it changes your serotonin receptors in your brain, and we'll see this like protracted long-term psychosis that's very hard to heal. Yeah. And, be, and some people who are not even predisposed to um, psychosis that we can figure out. This is sort of like a chicken or the egg. One thing I've noticed, especially with classical serotonergic psychedelics like LSD, psilocybin, DMT, the people who use them on the regular, and I'm, ta I'm talking about weekly or every two weeks, they just become really weird. And I don't know if it takes someone that really strange to do it that much or if it turns them into that. I, I, I really don't know. Yeah. Because it, it's just like going up Mount Everest if you do a high dose. Like, who wants to do that every single day? Yeah. Well, that's kind of what gets discussed and kind of talked about in this doc. Well, yeah, no fucking wonder he was probably like talking to Satan then. Well, yeah, so that's the obvious thing is, of course, none of the Satan shit is really there. This one kid was super into, like, being a fucking edgelord, which, at that age, who the fuck isn't? Tell me the name of this again. The doc is called The Acid King. The Acid, okay, that's The Acid King. And it is on Tubi TV for free. I mean, this is, sounds like Mandy, but a documentary. <laughs> A little bit. There's a lot less crying in your underwear in the bathroom while you pound a fucking <laughs> bottle of vodka. And there's a lot less six foot long chainsaws. Mandy's good. Yeah, Mandy's fucking rules, man. I love that movie. So what's wild is the documentary is going back and talking to all these people who grew up in this area and remember all this shit and knew these kids and everything else. 
they talk to like people who are totally well-adjusted professionals now, and they talk to people who look like fucking scumbums. You know, it's it's kind of this whole wide smattering of people. You know, there's biker ass dudes covered in tattoos, and then there's nerdy doctor, lawyer looking professional guys who are like, yeah, I'm married with kids now. They all are like, we were just into fucking metal and did drugs and talked about dumb shit too. We all did the same shit. So why did this one kid go like so far off the deep end? And like you said, it's kind of that chicken and egg thing. Was he kind of predisposed to going a lot harder because there were underlying mental health things that weren't properly identified and because of his lifestyle again living fucking homeless from that young of an age or was it something that the drugs themselves kind of set him off you know down this path what fucking broke this kid or was it just all of it so it's interesting to hear all these people kind of break that down and talk about i could have been this fucking kid you know i could have been the one that murdered people but we didn't and despite all the satanic panic that the media, like, grossly exploded, by the way. This was one of those things where they fucking stabbed this kid because they were super fucking high on drugs in the middle of the woods, and this kid had stolen drugs from them, and they just had a beef for a couple of weeks that, like, finally ended in this murder. The media made this into, like, it was a satanic murder ritual, and they carved up the body, and they did all this other shit to it, and they had candles, and they chanted, and they did all this other bullshit, and, like, none of that happened? And all the other people in the neighborhood were like, this isn't how this worked? Well, from what I remember, Ricky himself also, like, even after, in the aftermath, bragged about it and, like, was saying shit like, yeah, after I committed the murder, we committed the murder, a crow landed near a branch, and... I took it as Satan watching the proceedings and giving me approval. Like There were like a few things like that. I remember he, there were elements of that where he obviously kind of went along with the bullshit. Yeah, and that sounds like somebody who is just highly grandiose that's trying to make some, some sort of legend story for themselves because they have nothing else going on. I mean, that's what it smacks of to me. That's what it sounds like to me. That's what it yeah. sounds like to me. So that, that is what it is, but it's all, again, kind of in this one kid's ego. Yeah. Everybody else around town is just like, that's the fucking weird kid, whatever. <laughs> Nobody else in town took this seriously, but like... His gang, in air quotes, the fucking Knights of Satan or whatever they were calling themselves. Oh, my God. Again, in air quotes, gang, they were the dumb kids that spray painted stuff like Satin Lives. (laughs) Six, six, six. Hail Satin, like literally S-A-T-I-N. And that was the joke in the community. This is like these fucking kids are that dumb, right? They go to like the church signs and rearrange the letters to say Hail Satan. Basically, right? It was like the dumb shit that teenagers (laughs) all over the place get up to. The other thing, too, that they talk about, everybody in this doc talks about this. And you hear this all the time now, too, with all these fucking Gen X and boomer old people just being like, oh, kids these days are too fucking coddled and they have things too fucking easy. Well, here's a bunch of fucking Gen Xers who are all fucked up and they're all like, oh, we had zero supervision. We had nobody actually paying attention to what we were doing. We got into tons of fucking trouble. We did tons of stuff we shouldn't have done. I kind of wish that we had had some supervision because we wouldn't have fucked ourselves up as much. So, like, there's definitely a give and take with that, right? And all these people that are in this doc agree that 
we should have had some parental supervision or some kind of boundaries because we were just turned out into the fucking world. And that was that. Well, and the other thing about this is like, cause you, you mentioned like we, we all did stupid shit as teenagers and yeah, even kind that's of normal, destructive, stupid shit. It's the same argument whenever a mass shooting happens or anything like that, where it's just like, Oh, mental illness, this mental illness, that so, like how many people have depression, have anxiety, have bipolar, have these mental and illnesses. Don't buy guns and shoot people up. Yeah, and they mm-hmm. don't go like commit fucking murders and crimes. And in fact, what is it? If you suffer from any kind of mental illness, you're like five or six times more likely to be the victim of a violent act than like someone who isn't suffering from mental illness or something like that. That's generally pretty true. Yeah. Yeah. And regardless of all that, Even if you have mental illness issues or you have substance abuse issues, if your parents are that fucking checked out that they, A, don't notice any of that, B, maybe deny any of that's happening, but C, don't fucking notice that you're bringing home shitloads of weapons? Come the fuck on. Yeah. It's the same thing with this guy, with Ricky. Granted, Ricky sounds like he basically had the fucking worst childhood that probably led to this happening but it's kind of the same shit like when uh the fucking columbine shooters who was it marilyn manson or someone was just like oh i would have listened to them they were probably bullied they weren't fucking bullied they were they were the bullies in school actually yeah so it's interesting that like a lot of this with ricky like it sounds like it was all the wrong place wrong time wrong pieces fitting together for this to happen And that's kind of the conclusion that everybody comes to, because, again, they're all like, we did the same dumb shit. None of us committed a murder. And it's interesting that the Ricky Six movie very much starts off with him, like, being bullied and being beaten up and his dad's a dick to him and the coach is a dick to him and blah, blah, blah. And the S. King documentary, everybody's like, oh, he was a weird dickhead from the start. He was a fucking terror, you know? Uh, I'm sure, like, it was all kind of kickstarted by, like, his shitty family it life and then being kicked out sure, on the street. But he was not a super victim, necessarily. Again, just like the Columbine shooters, he might have been the one bullying others. Well, take it back. He was not a super victim in terms of, oh, woe is me, people are picking on me. Like, he was a victim based on, like, what his parents fucking did to him, for sure. Which sucks. Nobody should turn their seventh grader out yeah, of the streets. Absolutely. And then again, like, all the satanic panic happening. How many other teenagers were listening to the same music, doing drugs? Oh, totally. All that stuff. And that's what everybody talked about it toward the end of this doc was just how the fucking media went way overboard with all this and how the entire thing exploded and satanic panic just kind of suddenly was everywhere. So, again, you mentioned Acid King, the band. Totally. Lori S. is in this documentary because she grew up in that area. She knew of these kids and hung out in the same areas. Like their album, Bussy Woods, is totally one of those fucking weird hangout places where all these kids went and did drugs and fucked around. Their first self titled EP has Casso's face superimposed over their logo. There's like a famous image of him at his first arraignment where he is blasted out. Eyes are the size of dinner plates, looks fucking insane. It's like a Charles Manson photo, right? And that image of him instantly became this viral, sensational thing. And of course, he immediately was branded as a complete fucking psychopath. Anyway, yeah, super interesting 
very interesting to watch this movie and then watch the actual documentary and very different takes on kind of that story and who this person was and some of the situations that went down. You find out like it, it is way more fucked up. This kid was robbing graves and had already been in trouble for like assaults and all kinds of the shit beforehand. The movie just kind of makes it out as everything was fine until this one time he snapped and murdered somebody. In the documentary as well, they also talk about how he committed the murder and just left the body out there. And then he and the other kids started bragging and telling people like, oh yeah, we killed what's-his-nuts. He's out in the woods. You want to go see him? And little by little, they started bringing other kids out there to go see this fucking dead body. Until one of the kids finally went home and said, yo, mom and dad, we need to call the cops. None of that's in the movie. The movie adaptation, they commit the murder and then just wake up the next day and the police are arresting them, you know? And in reality, it was like two or three weeks before any of that happened. And then, of course, the whole thing kind of ends where it ends. Who the fuck knows all the final details of that? But it's one of those things where we'll never know what the fuck was going on with him or his side of the story or any of that. The rest of this community is still super fucked up from it. Their kids are fucked up from it. And, you know, they just handle everything completely differently. You know, nowadays, it's just kind of a night and day. Everything was different in that community once this happened. Again, like the more I learn about all the satanic panic shit that happened in the 80s and 90s, the more interested I become because we were all kind of growing up right in the middle of that, right as it was kind of fully, fully going. But we weren't cognizant, obviously, as young children of any of that until much later. So it's interesting, like, going back and learning about some of that shit that was happening when we were kids that we just weren't privy to because we weren't old enough to hear about it. Yeah, I still remember X-Files episodes, like, once in a while having, like, a Monster of the Week, and the Monster of the Week was something dealing with satanic panic. Love the episodes. I mean, they're great episodes. Yeah, Yeah. and it's super interesting, too, again, just looking at how fucking petty all this was Mm -hmm. and how the media completely fucking exploded all this in the most sensational fucking ways possible. And it's interesting in the doc seeing the progression of the news outlets initially just being like, this kid fucking committed a murder and killed this other kid to like, it was possibly motivated by like satanic ritual magic to this kid was in a fucking satanic cult and they cut his body up and drank his blood and they all listened to demon music. It just became more and more sensational as time went on. There was like a guy that came in and wrote a book about the whole thing, and the book became this huge bestseller. But then literally everybody that lived in the community was like, none of this shit actually happened the way this guy made it out. He's just got a weird agenda. Was that that guy with the real like country voice that uh, went around doing stage tours? I don't know. He was a total comedic stage performer or something. I don't know if it was the same guy. All of those guys? were exactly what you're describing, first of all. <laughs> Secondly, I think who you're thinking of is Mike Warnke. Yes. <laughs> Questions occur to me that don't occur to normal people, like how you get Teflon to stick to a skillet when nothing sticks to Teflon? <laughs> or how do you know when yogurt's gone bad? <laughs> or what would it be like to try and nail jello to a wall, you know? Yeah, that's what I'm thinking of. He was the kind of Christian comedian guy that had the big earring and tattoos, and he was like, yeah, I was in a fucking gang. I was into Satan shit. I was a bad dude. 
And now I tell jokes for the Lord. Like he, he was that kind of guy that supposedly lived a hard life and you don't buy a fucking second of it. It's like, nah, dude, you just have a fucking dangly earring and you wear a trench coat. You just go scare church people. <laughs> so yeah. Anyway, that is all I've got. I know that took a while to kind of go through, but it was interesting going a little bit deeper into both the writer and director of Flatliners filmographies just to kind of see what the fuck else is out there that, you know, I haven't checked out. Good rabbit hole to go down this episode. And considering the last few, I felt like a lot of the stuff I had checked out was left me wanting a little bit. You know, none of these three movies that I just mentioned are perfect by any means, but they are all very intriguing. I will say it was a good rabbit hole to go down. Cool. So all that said, we are going to go ahead and jump into the movie for this episode, which, Jeff, this was your recommendation. Um, this is the Oscar nominated for sound editing post Brat Pack gothic chiller from 1990, directed by Joel Schumacher, Flatliners. Today's a good day to die. Flatline. 30 seconds to go. Can you recall any specific emotion or sensation? No, but there's something out there. We're running out of time. 300, clear. Nothing. Your heart, go again. Clear. Nothing, I can't hear anything. Come on, Nelson. Breathe. We lost him. No. Welcome back, man. I'm going next. Two minutes. Two ten. Was there anything negative about your experience? This is too weird. We've experienced death. Now, somehow, we brought our sins back physically. That, that is not a hallucination, and it is not possible. Oh, my God. You withheld information. That's the same as lying. You wouldn't have done it. At least we would have had a choice. You're not real. <laughs> hey, come on. They're your sins. Live with them. I do. No! Nelson, please! I thought I paid my dues. Thank you for the nightmare. No! Come on, Joe! Starting CPR. Flatliners. Some lines shouldn't be crossed. Cool. So, like I mentioned before the trailer break, Jeff, this was your pick. Yes. You had been mentioning to us for a while that this was one that you wanted to do. Not just that, Jeff. I remember in college when you used to room with our friend Ben that all of us know from college. <laughs> I remember walking to y'all's apartment and then walking in on you watching this movie and then you <laughs> telling me even back in 2009, 2010, you've seen this movie like over a dozen times and you don't know why, but it's like one of your favorite movies to watch. Okay, now I'm even more intrigued, yes. Yeah, like I'm very intrigued. Like what about this movie like clicks with you that much? Yeah. Okay, one thing. Ben's not our friend. He's our son. And don't forget that. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yes, we are all collectively his dads. So that time period was a really rough time period in my life, like a super rough time period. There was a lot of crossfading going on. <laughs> we won't get into details, but like you and I were both coming off of long relationships and that ended yep. not in the best ways. Yep. So like you and I had that bond. Yes, I remember exactly. Well, there's that. Y'all were both doing really fucking intense schooling. And yeah. Jeff, you were traveling a lot. And one of yeah. the best things that I always loved was our house was very much a come and go party house kind of place. Like it wasn't super fucking nasty. The guys that I lived with were all fairly together. 
but we very much had a hangout house and we were right around the corner from two other hangout houses. One was mine. Yeah, there were like (laughs) nine people from our friend group all living within like a block of each other. It was very open door. I remember Jeff fucking busting into our house at like three in the morning after you had just (laughs) flown back from Germany and you were blasted and you were like, I just need a place to hang out for a bit. And we're like, sure. (laughs) What's up, Jeff? Haven't seen you in a couple of months. (laughs) If you're telling us right now in this moment, that was a rough time in your life. Guess what? I believe you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, especially when I was living with our son, Ben, that apartment that we were living in. You have to think about this. What was this? 2010? 11? It's about 2010. 2010, 2011, yeah. Ben and I together were paying $275 together for that apartment. I mean... Better times. Yeah, better times. I was paying, yeah, $135, $140 a month for rent. Our stove wouldn't work. Ben was just eating microwaved goods and like singing in the shower every morning. I didn't have a bed. I was sleeping (laughs) in the corner of my room. Also, that was when I really started experimenting with psychedelics. I mean, it was not a healthy time for me, but they actually kind of pulled me through some things. Sure. And this movie resonated with me back then because, well, Kiefer Sutherland's character has significant narcissism like throughout the movie. I mean, the dude has absolutely got a big dose of narcissistic personality disorder. You know, he's going to go down the rabbit hole and do this thing. Well, at that time, Nowacki was the one who even introduced me to uh, psychedelics, not by giving it to me, but the concept. You know, I grew up in a very sheltered environment. And I was the leader of first priority at a Christian school. So I was not, I had no idea about this sort of thing. And then I, uh, and even though I'm still, I, I still consider myself to be a Christian. I just, at that point, I had no idea what this was. I was in a rough place. I remember taking mushrooms and this whole thing happening and me being in a constant blaze, like drunk, smoking, crossfading all the time. My whole environment felt like a constant Joel Schumacher set. There's fog everywhere. Like, and if you ever came in our apartment, you know we always had like Halloween lights up. Yes. Yeah. Yep. You also had giant gothic face statues and lots <laughs> of fucking great lighting and everything. Yeah. And like Ben's magic cards everywhere. So you also had like the gothic <laughs> nature of magic everywhere. Friends DVDs. And Friends DVDs. Yeah. <laughs> Friends Which DVDs. it's its own kind of of horror and that yeah it's its own thing. i remember walking in one one afternoon from nursing school and i was fucking depressed I'm sure you were depressed and you were like just kind of glued to your laptop watching flatliners like hey hold on man before we hang out i just have 10 more minutes of this movie like uh, i'm gonna finish real fast and i just kind of hung out and did some homework or something while you watch the rest of flatliners and just ever since then You've talked about this movie. Yeah. When we started our podcast, you said eventually I want to come on for a Flatliners episode. Yeah. And I know, and another thing about it, see, I discovered it because I broke up with my then girlfriend, who's now my wife. Like, we got back together. We are now married. But at that time, I went over to her house right when we were breaking up, and her mom had this DVD of Flatliners. And I didn't intend to steal it. I just wasn't thinking. I was like, I'm taking this Flatliners. That's wild. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's wild. Because I like tangentially kind of know them. Yeah. Yeah, same. I know the older sister in that family. Let's put it that way. And that does not seem like a movie that they would have. So that seems like a weird choice. Yeah, well, their mom's a a great lady and very different. (laughs) So I saw it was like sitting up top and she loved Kiefer Sutherland and the Lost Boys, which I just watched a few days ago for the first time because of us about to do this. But I grabbed that and I just decided, oh, man, I was having one of those nights. I was like, oh, you know, like I'm thinking about old times. Let me pop in this movie I stole from their house. 
And that was, I think, when you walked in, was I, I was finishing it up for the first time. Oh, so that was the first time you'd seen it. Okay. I'm pretty sure that was the first time I'd ever seen it. I'm fairly certain. But yeah, like it's fascinating to me that like of all these horror movies, of all these movies you really love, yeah. this is there. And like Aaron said earlier, especially now that he passed and passed fairly recently, there's something endearing about Joel Schumacher. Is he the best filmmaker? No. But like his stuff is fascinating, even the misses. It's fun. Yeah, his it's, it's are fun. All very compelling and propulsive. Like even Flatliners were, let's be real, there's not a whole lot of plot to this fucking movie. And it's kind of repetitive, but you still fucking watch it. And there's still something kind of keeping you sucked to this movie. It sat with me in, in ways I wasn't expecting. And, and I, I wonder, Jeff. You and I are the medical people. Granted, you went more into the route of psychiatry. I was in an ICU setting, and there was death that happened. And this movie, even though it is kind of more of a surface-level take on a lot of the themes and tackling of fear of death and what's beyond the veil of death, it does still at least attempt to say something interesting about it. This movie kind of sat with me in ways I wasn't expecting it. I even texted you guys. I don't know if I liked this movie, but I certainly didn't hate it. But I've been thinking about it since watching it. And I'm kind of leaning now towards I'm going to wind up liking this movie the more I think about it. I think you will. And on rewatches. I think you will. And I weirdly got sad, but also hopeful because I've seen patients pass away and maybe patients have passed way before they should have passed. For the most part, I kind of live my life kind of agnostic, but spiritual personality I hope and want to believe that there is something beyond the veil of death. What it is, I'm not sure, but I, I want to think that. And like, there is something, despite the fact that it fucks all the characters up whenever they do it, it is kind of also about forgiveness and redemption in the end. It's kind of oddly comforting by the end of this movie. I did laugh out loud, though, that for all intents and purposes, it's a little kid beating the fuck out of Kiefer <laughs> Sutherland throughout this movie. Yeah. Those are the most horrific moments of the movie, with the exception of maybe her dead dad, whenever he like appears, because he's kind of the more spooky ghost. But like, uh-huh. otherwise, the kid is kind of fucking menacing in this movie when he's beating the shit out of Kiefer, even though the fucking medical in this movie is bonkers and like not accurate. That's the thing I want to say about the medical stuff real quick is that to me, I think it really gets in a a good impressionistic view instead of what's accurate. It's like an impressionism painting of like medicine. Yeah. The drugs they are naming are accurate. That's right. Yeah. They've got it correct. When you're coding, you are using epi and atropine and you have these steps you take. Okay, this isn't working. Let's switch to this. Oh, they're now in this rhythm. Now we switch the meds to like this. The drugs they're using to put themselves under and like to basically make themselves clinically dead are also accurate. Granted, if you're pushing potassium, you're probably (laughs) going to die and not come back. Yeah. But they at least tried, is like what I'm saying. Is like, and that's more than a lot of other movies and films when it comes to medical shit. Yeah. But I, I wonder if the impact is a little bit greater for anyone who has practiced medicine and frankly has seen people die even if you're not in medicine but you've like watched family members die or something like a grandparent or whatever i wonder if this might still have an effect because again i thought this movie was going to be jewel schumacher crazy surface level it's kind of funny kind of creepy but otherwise that's about it but i i actually kind of sat with it for a while and i'm still thinking about it so that's something that i did have specifically in my notes to discuss which first of all The cast worked with a medical technical advisor to kind of teach them the right terms and how to do things. And so one of my questions was, 
how does that hold up to you guys, right? Because the one thing that I know from having a dad in medical shit, there's some stuff like it's bullshit when you switch from a manual vent to rescue breathing. Like there's no reason for that, you know? So like that's one of the things that I know in every time you see it in movies and TV shows, it's not how that works. Yeah. But it looks more dramatic. It feels more tense. It ratchets up the suspense. So I get why they kind of commit that frequent idiocy in movies and TV shows. So you remember that scene in uh, the first Doctor Strange MCU movie where he's like, we got to get the surgery now and they don't scrub in at all. And they just like uh-huh. are using just their bare hands right in. Yeah, well, that's even more medically stupid than anything that's in this movie. Sure. So, uh, honestly. Sure. Yeah. Jeff actually described it really well as it's an impressionistic painting version of what actually happens in the code. It is kind of accurate in certain ways. Are they always going to come back if they put themselves in literal brain death no no it's not that easy to get a patient back from a fucking brain death do they have those fucking super cool plastic blankets that switch from neon orange to neon blue is that is that like actually a thing right i love that but the coloration that is totally like an aesthetic bullshit thing yeah they do have them yeah now the thing is in the movie they're like cooling them down in like three minutes with skin contact i'm like there's no way it's gonna take hours and hours and hours for that to work well you notice too like i mentioned this movie is repetitive because you see the same exact sequence happen four different times because four of the five leads all get put under but what you'll notice is every single instance it happens faster right putting the person Uh out happens a lot quicker and bringing them back happens a lot quicker it's just the magic of movie editing that those sequences kind of tighten up as you go but you're right like even the first instance of it where they do it to Kiefer Sutherland all that happens way too fast yeah on one of the scenes, I think Kiefer Sutherland is the one that mentions, let's administer intratracheal atropine. He's got the atropine right. Yeah. And I was thinking, I was like, that's just going to go straight down his windpipe. Why are they doing yeah. intratracheal <laughs> atropine? That's terrible. And then I started doing some research. And yeah, it's sure enough, like nobody uses intratracheal no. experiments with mice. <laughs> yeah. What the hell are they doing? Well, and the other thing too, like, wasn't it on Julie Roberts? Because like, she's the one where the fuse box blows out. Weren't they about to like administer? Oh, fuck. What medication was it? But like, they basically call them out and like, you're going to fry her brain if you do that. Like, even if she survives. I think they were just going to administer an extra dose of epi. I think that was what it was. And I was like, yeah. Something. Yeah. Yeah. Might have been. But yeah, there was some truth in that scene. Yeah. And their compressions. Their compressions are, by the way. compressions were like one Mississippi, two Mississippi, which is, you're going to go brain dead, breaking anything. They were not deep enough at all. Yeah. Because like when you do compressions, like more than likely you're going to break the top rib if you're doing them right. And it is kind of one of those situations of either you live with a broken rib or you die. That's kind of the trade-off a lot of times with CPR. Yeah, and it's full weight. I've compressed little ladies trying to revive them. And man, it is hard. It's hard. Yeah. It's rough. Correct me if I'm wrong, too, but I have heard if you have to have CPR done like that, your chances of actually pulling through that are like less than one out of ten. If it gets to that point, you're kind of fucked. These days, it's closer to somewhere between 15 to 20%. Yeah, we're getting closer and closer as medical advances to like coin flips when it comes to certain codes. But honestly, like what a lot of times those CPRs are doing is basically keeping the person alive enough, quote unquote, in theory, or at least keeping their heart pumping until the actual like 
drugs are getting administered, like the stuff that's actually going to bring them back is starting to happen. Yeah. Especially like if someone goes down like in a non-medical setting, you do CPR to keep the blood pumping until like medical arrives and they can actually start using an AED, all that kind of stuff, administering epi, et cetera, et cetera. The other medical inaccuracy I wanted to touch on was when they're resurrected, yeah, they're coughing and stuff, but they're almost like immediately conscious, which that's not the case after you bring someone back. It's like they had just a bad dream or like they haven't gotten enough sleep, but they're like still walking around and talking. No, that wouldn't be the case either. Yep. They would be <laughs> fucked up for a while like in bed, but not like in this movie because like in this movie, yeah, they, they go to bed and they have to like sleep it off. But like you can't just sleep off a code like that if you're coming back. Sure. Even yep. in a controlled environment like that. And listeners, we are kind of jumping into this, but like just to give you an idea what this movie is about is it's. Medical residents, right? They have to be residents. They are certainly fucking acting like residents. They're all calling each other doctor. They're medical students. They're first year medical students. So that's fucking wild then that Kevin Bacon <laughs> thinks he could do a fucking bedside surgical procedure. Like, yes. no wonder he got his ass kicked out. Yeah, exactly. But like, so anyway, so it's a group of medical students. And Kiefer Sutherland is this very ambitious medical student. All of them are like the top of their class. Each of them have their own different personality types, and they basically decide they are going to put Kiefer Sutherland under. When we say put under, we mean induce clinical death where there's no heart rate and also brain death is achieved to basically have a near-death experience and see like what is on the other side. Then they resurrect them, and four out of the five or six of them do this. And oopsie-daisy, because this is a horror movie, because they did that, they bring back something with them and yeah. you know it turns out to be their sin or some bad memory and it's literally like hallucinations and the memory like haunting them and even in some cases physically hurting them it all kind of seems to revolve around past transgressions of some kind or another i think they even jokingly call them like karmic events or whatever yeah and each one deals with a different trauma which also opens up another whole door of like different themes that this movie is tackling. But anyway, sorry, Jeff, what were you going to say? Yeah, I was going to say, I just assume they're part of the like Warhammer 40k universe. They're going into the warp and they're manifesting, <laughs> you know, chaos gods. But really, especially as a Catholic, how I interpret it is, you know, they're going through a purgatory and coming back in a way. I just think that they didn't put Oliver Platt's character under because I can't see him having like gone under and come back and having to deal with whatever he's dealing. He's just not that type of actor to me. I have notes on that. We'll get to in a minute. Yeah. Well, honestly, like, I mean, I don't know what it was production wise, but it, it feels like his character makes the most sense not to do it. It was appropriate. Exactly. I mean, it does. It does. Yeah, I agree. But I'm glad you brought that up because I, I was going to like talk about that later on this episode. But since you brought it up, I'll bring it up now how I interpreted what they actually see on the other side and everything. I've gone down the rabbit hole late at night before looking up near death experiences and reading them and all that. And it's something like, I think 10 or 15% of people who clinically are dead for a few minutes have a near-death experience of some kind. Universally, across the whole world, regardless of culture, there are similar things that people are seeing and feeling and even hearing. I find that all fascinating. One of the things that is a common thing in near-death experiences is something called a life review, which is basically your life flashes before your eyes before you die. And what people report is that in a life review, you basically relive your life in like a moment, except you ha now have universal consciousness and you see every action you took and how it affected other people around you, negative and positive, and you feel like deeply feel all of that emotional energy. And so what 
my like kind of idea of what's going on in this movie is they've all hit that life review stage. Whatever higher power or knows what they're doing, and they're not technically going to die all the way. So they're just like you said, Jeff, they're seeing the purgatorial first step of death and they're kind of not ready for it, which is why when they come back, it, it continues to haunt them until they find that moment of clarity or forgiveness or whatever. I find that kind of fascinating. I don't know if that's what Joel Schumacher and the writer of this movie were going for, like that idea of like a, a life review and near-death experiences. Mm-hmm. Listeners, if you have any interest in this topic, granted, if you're a skeptic of all this, that's totally fair. But like, if you have an interest of reading about it, near-death experiences are pretty fascinating to read about. I, I enjoy doing it. Well, I find it interesting, too, I guess, that these characters kind of all come from different angles at this topic. And Kevin Bacon specifically is like, I am an atheist. I don't believe there is any life after death. There is no afterlife. There's not whatever. You just fucking die. You know, he goes into it with that attitude. Again, these all being med school students, you know, they're all like doing this for the research. They're doing this for the experience. Really, like, there's a lot of fucking egos, right? Because they're all trying to one-up each other by, like, how long they stay under and everything else. And each of them has an ulterior motive as to why they're doing it, too. Yeah, and it's all the, like, playing God ego kind of thing. I mean, let's be real. The sets of this movie are all fucking covered in paintings of Prometheus and shit. Which, by the way, I know this movie came out in 1990, so it wasn't fully the 90s. What was it with 90s movies, especially kind of gothy horror 90s movies that love neon and like abandoned churches, but also they could be like nightclubs? Well, we'll get into that. Time. Yeah, we'll get into that more in a little bit. I love that. I love it. Such a 90s aesthetic. So, yeah, Kevin Bacon is the only one who kind of goes into this like, I don't believe there's anything afterward. I will be the like control in this experiment. And if I come back and say, oh, yeah, shit happened, then we'll know something's up. You know, he comes back and he's a little bit cagey about his experiences, but ultimately he kind of has the same. I saw a vision of a kid that I bullied growing up, blah, blah, blah. And he's also the only one who, like, actually takes some action in that regard and tracks down this girl that he bullied growing up to, like, tell her He's sorry and try to make amends a little bit that magically kind of solves his karmic dilemma. And he's kind of the one that figures out the solution to this. You know, that's not to say that, okay, well, now what happens when he actually dies later in life? Is he just going to be in a blank void? Who knows? Because he's already solved his karmic imbalance, whatever. But I do find it interesting that he's the only person who actually took some action and said, hey, I should try to go fix this. And everybody else just, especially like Kiefer Sutherland, like the most action he takes is I'm going to fucking bolt my door shut against this apparition that just keeps appearing because that's going to help. Yeah, good luck, buddy. You're getting assaulted by a ghost. (laughs) Yeah, but Bacon's really the only one who actively tries to solve this dilemma. Again, it's just interesting to me that he's the one that figures that out, but he's also the one that kind of started this whole thing with zero expectations to answer one of your questions i think kind of the ending sort of fully at least hints at like what's actually going on because when Kiefer sutherland goes under which he goes under what for over nine minutes when they discovered him yeah like yeah good minutes. luck fucking resurrecting that guy but anyway yeah yeah that's a carrot <laughs> when he confronts the bully and it, what it really boils down to with the bully in my mind is the bully just wanted to fuck with him before he went off to heaven a little bit and like <laughs> then forgive him 
I found that hilarious because like basically what happens is he confronts him in the afterlife. The kid that he accidentally killed bullying sort of forgives him and then him in the spirit of his dog wander off into the white light. I took that as like them moving on to the next stage. But I do love the idea that that kid was waiting for him in purgatory just to beat the fuck out of him a little bit before going off to heaven. Yeah, like, yeah. I didn't even you know, I didn't even think about that, that being the case that the kid was sitting there having to wait till Kiefer Sutherland dies so that he can pass on. Yeah. <laughs> just to get back at this bully. That is one of the weird plot holes because you can also say the same thing about Julia Roberts's Vietnam vet druggy dad. She's entering into his purgatory. Yeah, he is also just in purgatory waiting for her to resolve something that's not at all her fault, right? She like has yeah. all this guilt around it, but what karmic imbalance did she have there, right? She thought she caused it by interrupting him and that caused him to go over the edge and kill himself. So like this goes back to the again near death experiences, at least what people think they see in real life is the idea of loved ones waiting for them and kind of greeting them at the gates of the next plane or whatever, be it heaven or like the next plane of existence. And I kind of took that with her dad as he wanted to wait for her and get her forgiveness that he left her by like the way he dealt with PTSD, doing the drugs and then killing himself. He was kind of waiting for her forgiveness. And so like when she goes under, she dies prematurely before her time. She pulls him back with her and like then when he finally gets that chance to like confront her that's how he like gets to move on i take that as the same idea with the bully although i think the bully and the dog could have moved on at any point but they wanted to wait for Kiefer to die so they could at least fuck him up a little before they like move on but yeah that's kind of how i took it at the end of the day but the movie doesn't spell it out for you i don't think it's necessarily a bad thing that the movie doesn't fully explain this i think it's better i'd prefer it not yeah i'd prefer it not I want you to take the journey with the characters. Yeah. Yeah, and I'd prefer it not as well because it's just not consistent, so I'd rather it just not be explained. None of the women in all of Billy Baldwin's visions are dead. These are just all women that he's hooked up with that he's feeling guilt over. And I love how he never gets resolution. No. (laughs) His fiance leaves him. His resolution is fucking Hope Davis ditches his ass. Which... He deserves. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, ostensibly, none of those women are dead that we know of. So, like, why are they showing up in these purgatory visions, right? Well, again, Kevin Bacon's girl that he bullied, she wasn't dead either. Same thing. Yeah. He's seeing visions of her when she was a kid, and he was a kid, but she's still alive. I took that as the manifestation of their biggest sin, basically. Sure. That's where I will agree. I'm kind of glad the movie doesn't really set any hard and firm rules because it's just not consistent. It also feels a little bit repetitive, too, that Kiefer Sutherland and Kevin Bacon are both seeing visions of a kid that they bullied during their childhoods. Now, Kevin Bacon bullied a girl who, like, went on to have a perfectly normal life, and then the kid that Kiefer Sutherland bullied, like, they bullied him literally to the point where it caused his accidental death. (laughs) Yeah, I think his was a little more intense. They, like, ended (laughs) in completely different directions, but both of them ostensibly did the same thing, right? Whoever played Kid Kiefer Sutherland looked like a little bastard. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's just kind of wild to me that that is repeated. They didn't find something more specific. And frankly, William Baldwin's sex videos thing is also like kind of super goofy and you don't really care (laughs) because there's not any direct trauma to him, which I know that sounds fucked up to say, 
I don't care about it because there's no trauma to him when all these women were the ones who were actually victims. That's not what I meant. What I meant was for the narrative purpose of the story, he feels guilty about that. Sure. I don't, it just, it's not as dramatically effective. Well, it's probably that idea of almost like Dahmer where like Dahmer deep down knew how fucked he was as a serial killer. And that's why he would like get blitzed out of his mind when he would do sure. the killings. But we don't have any of that sociopathy with Billy Baldwin's character, though. True. You would that's think true. it would be a little more extreme or that he like really crossed a boundary that something's going on. I don't know. I just took it as he was the only one that like deserved what he got and he got no forgiveness. He basically got punished ultimately. And hopefully like he learned from the air of his ways from that is sure. basically his lesson, I guess. And the only thing that I can think of is that this element is only in this movie because Rob Lowe's real life sex tape capades was like this whole big fucking thing in pop culture at the time. Rob Lowe obviously is a brat pack person who had been in an earlier Schumacher movie, right? I think that was kind of some of the residue, for lack of a better word, I guess. That was kind of happening here. Well, my my thought when it was revealed what he was doing in this movie was fucking Dennis from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, because <laughs> that's exactly what he does. Oh, sure, sure. <laughs> and it wouldn't surprise me if that was kind of a riff on this as well. Yeah. This is where, like, if I'm kind of critiquing this movie or really thinking critically about, like, the structure of this movie and everything else, I think, again, it gets a little tedious because we kind of see the same repetition process happen. A I think someone should have gone full evil and completely fucking lose out on redemption. Imagine if Sutherland had just really fully gone full fucking maniacal villain by the end of it and, like, did not have a turnaround and positive ending and all this. Like, if he just went full fucking villain. So you're saying what Jeff suggested where they, like, go to a Warhammer universe between the veil of death and life that it's basically Event Horizon. Well, not even malicious villain, but let's just say antagonistic, I guess. It makes more sense if it's Sutherland. It would have been really interesting and shocking if, like, Julia Roberts was the one who really fucking lost control. By the end of it, that could have been really interesting. I also think with there being fucking five leads, I feel like somebody should have died. There should have been one person who fucking bit it. And they were like, oh shit, should we actually keep doing this? We just fucked up bad, right? Obviously, it can't be Kiefer Sutherland or Julie Roberts. Probably not Kevin Bacon. And no one would care if it's Baldwin. So that's where, again, Oliver Platt, he seems fucking right to be the one who could die because he's so reluctant to do it in the first place. And what if they push him and Kiefer Sutherland specifically pushes him into this and he's the one that fucking eats it and they can't bring him back. And then it's like, oh, now we're in like some actual deep shit. What do we do? Should we keep doing this? Blah, blah, blah. Like, how do we deal with this? I don't know. Maybe that also just completely jumps the shark for the movie because now you have to deal with the dead body. It's already like unrealistic that these medical students are getting away with borrowing, quote unquote, borrowing. basically stealing yeah. all these supplies, fucking coding medications. Any hospital, especially an educational hospital worth their salt is keeping big tabs on how much of these actual meds are being used and whatnot. I think if someone actually died, the movie trying to basically have these medical students cover up the fact that one of them is dead 
would maybe have been a step too far. Sure. That's what I'm saying. Like, I don't think it's the best idea necessarily, but it would at least add a major turning point. Something happening in the movie. It's not just the repetition of each of them going through their turns, I guess. Jeff, you had a thought about that? Yeah, yeah. And that's a really interesting way to go about it, Mansfield, I think. But in a way, they do explore that in the remake. One, they do explore the idea of someone who just does not get redemption and does die without redemption. Also, the medical equipment thing, they address that in the of the remake too. It's still it's still stupid how they address yeah. it, but they do address that in the remake. Tangentially, I really wanted to go back to the beginning of the film to where Oliver Platt is sitting in that damn apartment and he's got his little recorder and he's like this is a Steckel diary of a budding physician. Uh, this is Steckel uh, genesis yeah. of a young surgeon. You have no idea how many medical students in their first year are like that. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. So yeah. <laughs> I had that question oh as well. And I was I figured I was just going to jump past it since we kind of got away from the subject of how realistic is this field's experience. But let's step back to that. Lol at this fucking depiction of med school and it being this fucking cutthroat competition i asked savannah about that too by the way like that fucking test where it's just i'm only gonna give four of you a's four of you b's and the rest yeah. of you are fucked yeah savannah about that doesn't yeah they don't do that sliding bullshit no <laughs> we don't have curves like that <laughs> yeah the thing, the thing is on a lot of them like there's gonna be a lot of us that fail just because it's so freaking hard i mean medical school is really tough yeah they don't need to do that like already the idea of having a, a graving curve where even if you make a 95 percentile they're gonna be like well you didn't do as good as randall steckel so you're out <laughs> that's not gonna happen <laughs> yeah it also seems to like fundamentally undermine the search for knowledge and understanding. Yeah, if you make it a competition. When yeah. everything is fucking tainted by ego. Yeah. Well, so here's the thing. And Jeff, comment on this too, because you, you went through a lot of this too. And I'm only a nurse, but I am married to a doctor. And I, I did ask her a couple questions about this. None of that ego-driven stuff is there. The only egos are the actual students themselves. But as far as like the medical school itself and the faculty, they're all just trying to teach. They're trying to make the next generation of doctors, like that's their goal. Sure, there are faculty that have egos, probably, but that's not on the forefront here. They're not turning it into like a cutthroat competition because, like Jeff said, it's hard enough that people are naturally going to fail anyway. And so they don't need to turn it really into a competition. And that's why I, I was wondering are these supposed to technically be like intern residents already? Because they sure are acting like it. One of the more accurate things in this movie is that Kevin Bacon's character gets fucking kicked out for trying to basically start a surgery on a yeah. coding patient. <laughs> it's already bad if you're a resident trying to do that. If a resident tried to do that, they would get kicked out. But a medical student doing that, when they're on the floor, medical students don't do anything. They may present, but that's it. They don't touch patients. Residents are the ones doing the hands-on work. And even then, sometimes they're not allowed to like be the one doing the shit. It has to be like the full-fledged doctor. Yeah, so the most accurate thing is that he would obviously get kicked out of med school. But honestly, he would probably get kicked out permanently, never like be allowed to come back. And he might even face charges. Like That's how severe that yeah. would be. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I know someone who failed the whole year, and they, they should have because they fed a patient who was NPO. Basically, they weren't supposed to have food after midnight because the patient begged for a hamburger, and they went to surgery the next day, aspirated, and died. And so that dude failed a year of med school when he was about to graduate because of that whole debacle. Crazy. But yeah. My roommate for half of medical school, 
he's now a trauma surgeon, you know, and he and I still keep up a lot. Like that's what he does is what uh, Kevin Bacon is trying to do. And he's doing it nine, 10 years before the experience he has (laughs) necessary to do it. And nobody has gloved up. No, Nobody's like sterilizing anything. They're just going straight in there with random medical instruments and trying to close up arteries and stuff. Like what in the world? Those surgeries take a while. Yeah. They don't just go yeah. in there and this is not what is it, trauma center, the old Wii games? <laughs> like it's not like that. Yeah. Yeah. Like and they wouldn't do it at bedside if it's that severe. Like they would rush them to the the operating room. Talking about stylistic goth neon, even that hospital setting was fucking ridiculous as a hospital. It's so ridiculous. I don't know if you ever had to take dissection classes, like dissecting a human. No, I I didn't, unfortunately. I, I want I really wanted to to have that experience. Yeah, so let me address that whole thing. You know, when they're going in there and they're uh, actually doing their dissection anatomy classes, and that's when they're like gloving up and they're talking about the whole ordeal. And Billy Baldwin is telling Julia Roberts to identify that penis and all that kind of stuff, you know, just being a total dickhead. That room, if you've ever been in a room with that many dead bodies, it reeks of formaldehyde. They wouldn't have it in a room of just all these beautiful classical paintings (laughs) with hardly any lighting where you can barely see any of the small vasculature. Not only that, they don't have the bodies above tanks. Like You have to get them out of tanks where they soak. If you don't, they dry up, and that's a major faux pas. If you leave out your body out for a night, you get chewed your ass out. I mean, I would imagine so, yeah. Yeah. Not only is it mess. It's still a person. I know they're, like, preserved, right? But, like, A, it's disrespectful. B, somebody else has to fucking clean up after you. And, like, C, it's still, despite the, like, preservative chemicals and everything, it's still, like, meat that's going bad, right? And it will dry out, and their bodies are hard to come by. And, yeah. And then you see all these medical students in there, like, you know, Julie Roberts has her hair all out and stuff. Like, let me tell you, man, you're down in those bodies. And I, I still remember, we were supposed to wear a mask. One time I did not wear a mask in there. I was cutting into the intestine oh, yum. to do a our body. There was still gas in there and exploded, and I got matter, formaldehyde matter in my mouth. Ooh, Never again did I fuck ever. Fuck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of the worst, worst memories of my entire life was uh, a mouthful of fecal formaldehyde, man. It was bad. Meanwhile, you have these douchebags just basically all having like powwow hours, like it's <laughs> high school. But to go back, another thing, Aaron, like Jeff, you also touched on this egos, even in med school. That is one thing that is kind of accurate, too. Oh, yeah. Tons of ego. Especially, like, the way William Baldwin is in this movie. Like, especially for a surgeon. William Baldwin in this movie definitely has that surgeon kind of chauvinistic tendency. Not kind of chauvinistic, period chauvinistic tendencies. Yeah. And, like, Kiefer Sutherland having, like, the ego-driven thing. That's another personality of certain surgeons. Grandiose. Even Julia Roberts kind of being antisocial and very... Kind of airy, but also very much about information. She reminds me of a neurosurgeon or a neuro doc, in fact, in this movie. I knew several people in med school who were like almost fit her exact profile. Yeah. And then Oliver Platt, those were a dime a dozen. You'd have these people going to the bars and wearing their white coats. Like, what are yeah. you doing, man? Like, thank goodness I was near the bottom of the class. So I had no ego at that point. I was yeah. Like, Whatever. You know, I was just passing. And, and unfortunately, like you said, there are like a lot of the top of the class people who are like that. Which makes sense, because in this movie, like these are the five top-of-the-class people. Even Kevin Bacon, before he got kicked out, was they were saying next to Julia Roberts' character, he was top-of-the-class. I love that this movie doesn't set up why Kiefer Sutherland Nelson is doing this. He just is. This movie almost starts in media res at 
we've been planning this for months like it's happening tonight and i like how it never goes back and tries to explain why he's doing it it just we're starting like i have a theory as to why and i think it has to do with his narcissistic personality disorder in those sort of patients you notice how Kevin Bacon, he's the one that discovers to go ask for forgiveness. He's not as egotistical as the rest. He doesn't have as much narcissism as some of the other ones. Um, while they all have a bit of narcissism, he's less so in my opinion. Sometimes with the narcissistic patients, they tend to see the world more in a view of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, life for a life, you know, as far as redemption goes. And so my own personal theory is his subconscious is driving him toward, oh, he's going to make this discovery, killing himself to repent. That's his only way that his narcissistic brain can even think of forgiving himself to repent for this death that he caused. If it were to happen to him, that's what he would want to happen. He would want that person to die. He couldn't forgive them. And so in a way, he's not forgiving himself. That's my theory. Sure. Well, yeah. it goes back to like his idea of solutions are literally for a ghost that's kicking his ass his solutions are i'm going to board myself up in my apartment that is full of neon floor lighting by the way <laughs> anyway more joel schumacher like aesthetic choices look fucking sutherland's apartment is he independently wealthy that it helps explain the ego <laughs> what is the fucking deal with that apartment well i mean even baldwin's apartment is not that bad either like medical students don't make money nah baldwin's living in a fucking boat shack he's living in a weird spot his pet is the one that i was just like nah nah no no way kevin bacon didn't have the worst place kevin bacon had to use a rappel to get out of his window yeah <laughs> What is this junk? <laughs> I think that's just that character being a like fucking rush junkie edge lord, and that's just how he prefers yeah. to leave every day is getting a little bit of a base jumping in. Yeah. But like Kiefer's is the one that's barely furnished, super like modern looking with neon lighting. Ornate. Yeah. Baroque. There's fucking molding all over the place. It's super expensive. Yeah. It's got the big bookcases. He lives in what is a multi million dollar apartment. Yeah. Even back then, guarantee that was a $750,000 a month kind of place. You know, Bolin's apartment is kind of like a studio and he has like stairs that go up to his bed kind of thing. Yeah, it's not the most. It's in like a boat shack, though. It's like in I a thought weird, it was just like, an apartment warehouse. It seemed like it was like in a gentrified warehouse to me. That's what I took it as. Oh, I'm um, that probably sure, but it's still in like a fucking yeah. weird warehouse. And then Bacon's is just kind of the most normal. Yeah, like looking. I guess it is a weird range of like. Well, Julie Roberts is. Yeah, hers is also very normal. Like it does. Okay, that's realistic too. Plaza's as well. Yeah, because he's living yeah. in like student housing. But, like, Kiefer Sutherland is clearly independently wealthy, like, living in a fucking family-owned brownstone kind of bullshit. And, and the more you've brought it up, Jeff, it makes sense, him being a narcissist. Oh, totally. Yeah, the ego, everything. Yeah, he's, he's an absolute narcissist. Speaking of the houses, the childhood home of Julia Roberts that you, like, see in her visions, that weird standalone brownstone. It's a little fixer-upper, a little bit of one, for sure. For a second, I had to look this up. It looks really similar to the building from Bones. It does. The fucking it really does. Dog black exploitation yeah. horror movie. And I had to look it up. That movie was actually shot in Vancouver, and that building was probably a facade, which just now makes me question even harder. Like, so there is just a weird fucking standalone brownstone kind of thing that was in Chicago at some point. Probably not anymore, right? But yeah, where the fuck did they find this building? 
But like that house is wild. Like, was it just the vision or was it literally like when she runs outside the house, even though they're in a city, it's like it's in the middle of nowhere. It's completely standalone. Yeah. It kind of helps with the weird disconnected kind of. This is purgatory. Yeah. 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 With the weird dreamlike quality of their death visions, even though it is repetitive because like it's just one after the other putting themselves under or following the same. Oh, are they going to make it? They've gone further and they, of course, make it. But I did like how each vision is very different. The two imageries that I found fascinating were actually William Baldwin's and Kevin Bacon's, specifically in the beginning, because William Baldwin's, his whole vision is very like sexual pervy. It begins, though, with kind of his birth. And it's like, oh, it's a boy. And the thing that he's focused on is the breastfeeding aspect of it. And then with Kevin Bacon's before, like it flash forwards to his childhood bullying this this little girl. You see him in utero as like a fetus. And I find that also fascinating. There's all kinds of imagery with death and birth being like this one cycle. And the idea of, again, a life review you literally remember from the beginning to the end of your entire life. And I think it's was it an Alex Ross painting or something like that where it's like a skull with the fetus in the middle of the skull, like it's in the womb. I love that idea of imagery between like the cycle of life and death being basically a circle. I'm sure the movie wasn't doing that on purpose, but especially with Kevin Bacon's death vision, I like how it began like that from space became a fetus. And then now he's like an asshole kid bullying this little girl on the playground. Yeah. (laughs) I like the idea too, that visually, again, we've talked around that enough, but the visual aesthetics of this movie are really fucking cool, I still think, and hold up really well. I like them. That's easily one of the best things about it. Like Schumacher them. has always been a very stylish filmmaker. It felt very music video in some aspects, and then I forget that totally. Joel Schumacher did direct music videos. Did a too. lot of music yeah. videos, right? Yeah. But I'd like that each character's hallucinations are visually specific. Yeah. Sutherland's are all blue. It all switches to that neon blue lighting. Julie Roberts's are Julie Roberts's are all really red, red. And orange. Kevin yeah. Bacon's are like stroby, and there's lots of quick cuts to the editing. Baldwin's all have that grainy camcorder look, and they're black and white, right? So, like, I like that each of them have their own iconography, so you always know exactly whose hallucination you're in, even if you don't necessarily like see the actor. I didn't even pick up on the camcorder aspect. Yeah, but Baldwin I didn't even pick pick up on that until you said that. That yeah. totally makes sense. Yeah, it, it stylistically, it's a really cool choice given his sin. Which one was it that it starts with basically the spirit flying over the mountains? That's Sutherland. So that's Sutherland. Yeah, that was really yeah. cool visual. Kevin Bacon's does too, though. I think they both are flying over mountains on both of their... Yeah. The snowy mountains is Kevin Bacon, yeah. yeah. But just flying over the field is is Sutherland, yeah. Yeah. Other thing I'll mention, too, before I get into, like, production stuff, because that'll also answer some of the questions we have. Something was happening in the zeitgeist around the time that this movie came out, because the year before this movie... Steven Spielberg put out Always, which also deals with the afterlife. The year after this movie, Albert Brooks puts out Defending Your Life, which is also about going to the fucking afterlife and then having to account for like everything that you've done with your life. The same year this movie comes out, Flatliners, we also have Ghost and Jacob's Ladder. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. So like there's clearly something going on right now in the zeitgeist. And I don't know if it was just these kind of happened to all be scripts that were floating around around the same time, 
or if there was just something that studio execs were responding to that, okay, we got to get this out, right? It's just weird that those all happen. That's five movies that happen within functionally, you know, a two to three year time period. And there are probably more than that. Those are just the ones I could think of right off the top of my head. But there was definitely something happening that I find to be kind of interesting. And it's not like a deep impact Armageddon volcano Dante's Peak kind of thing where like it's kind of the same thing. These are all dealing with the afterlife and air quotes, but in very different ways, very different tones, very different end purposes. So yeah, I just, I found that interesting. I have a theory to that as well, why I think that is. And yeah. it has to do with like talking about the zeitgeist of it. You have certain authors and figures that kind of go in waves of popularity. And I think around that time, there was sort of a wave of, do you know who John C. Lilly, like the Altered States, was based on John C. Lilly? Yes. That guy who like created isolation tanks. I think some of his theories were circulating in the Hollywood crowds around that time. And a lot of it had to do with that sort of inducing this altered state of consciousness, starting to see these theories of Stanislav Grof, who's a psychedelic pioneer who would um, talk about seeing you know, your birth memories as a fetus and things like that. And I think a lot of that was circulating in Hollywood around that time. Like there was sort of a wave of it. Oh, uh, So maybe that Kevin Bacon, like yeah. death vision of him as a fetus kind of might have been put in there on purpose for that reason. I think Jeff's right there. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense considering the visions that they're seeing. I mentioned Altered States a while back on the show as a recommendation. That all makes sense. That makes a lot of sense, I think. I could be wrong, but that's that's my theory. Well, when did that uh, Robin Williams movie about the afterlife come out? That's later in the 90s. That's later that's in the 90s. 97, 98, something like that. And I'm sure like that it's always been around, but I really feel like the 90s had a lot of afterlife movies this is totally random but i just thought about it another fucked up one that i remember like as a kid that i was just like what is this movie called fluke this fucking dad dies tragically in like a car accident and then this family adopts a new puppy and the puppy is the reincarnated soul of the dad Okay. The title, the title, this is so 90s. It is 90s. I'm looking at it too. The poster <laughs> is the fucking puppy in the dad's shoes. It is. With just yeah. crayon letters above it that says fluke. Like, that was a kid's movie during this time period, right? The crayon script, that was so used around that time period all the time. Yeah. That kindergarten cop shakes the clown font. Yeah. Baby geniuses. At the beginning when Julia Roberts is asking the patients about death i had to look her up beth grant that woman who is in she's in donnie darko she's she's like one of those hey i i see that person everywhere but i don't remember who she is she was most recently in willie's wonderland nick cage's movie about the uh five nights at freddy's characters and yeah yeah, yeah beth grant she's one of the actresses that she's interviewing yes i just wanted to note that she's in there too of like of all people I have her kind of earmarked for the cast because she is that woman actress who like appears in a shit ton of stuff. I will circle back around to her. Speaking of weird shit too, like again, looking up near death experiences with her, like saying that the voice said, it'll take my baby again. uh, Some people said that in near death experiences that they met their brother or sister that they never had. And when they came back, they like asked their parents about and their parents like, Oh, we had a stillborn at 20 weeks. Or like, oh, we had a miscarriage. Just again, weird like little thing. Obviously, I think Schumacher or the writer like did their research, I think, on near-death experiences when writing this. 
Have you ever talked with patients who say they've experienced something surviving a code event or brain death or anything like that? Uh, yeah, I have. Now, I, the thing is, I don't know if they survived brain death versus just prolonged cardiac arrest. Right. But yeah. it is something, not just because this movie, it is, you know, obviously a personal interest. And I'll bring it up as a psychiatrist to, you know, work through, d- did you did you experience anything? And a lot of people don't. But then I have had a couple who have experienced more so the floating out of the body. That's the most common one that I've gotten is sort of almost like the ketamine experience without ketamine, like starting to float out of their body and see the people around them and describe those things and um, feel like they're accelerating upward um, while they're watching all the procedure go on. That's really been the most detailed imagery I've gotten and, and not just from multiple people, you know, for whatever that's worth. Yeah. Well, it's funny you mentioned that. They used ketamine once on me, I want to say for a colonoscopy or something. I I guess they normally use fentanyl or whatever, but I did get the fucking out of body experience, man. I wanted that. I just went to sleep like an asshole. Oh, you just went to sleep too bad. bad. (laughs) Yeah, it felt great. Ketamine. I see why people get addicted to it. It felt real nice before I uh, fell asleep. No, no out of body experience for me when I took that. Yeah. yeah. Womp womp. Kiefer Sutherland. When he comes back immediately, you know, they've got him covered up, shivering like crazy, and he goes out and he's like, Are you all right, wise one? Babe, I feel like a highly tuned instrument. Can you hear the traffic on the lakeshore? Underneath that, there's a hum. It's the street lights. All right. Even fainter, I, I can hear a kind of dragging sound. It's getting louder. I don't only hear it. I can feel it. He's like really in tune to all this stuff. The dragging. I was trying to figure out what that was. And I I couldn't figure out. Is that like earthworms? Or is it the dog? Is it the dog dragging itself to come find him? You know, that he encounters champ. I think he's implying that it's rats or worms or something. But I think what's actually happening is, yeah, it's the dog. Champ coming after him. And the kid that he accidentally killed coming to fuck his world up yeah he says it's getting closer yeah and so that's kind of what i was thinking but i didn't know which that's a creepy line in context Mm -hmm. once you find out like what's going on again like a lot of the actual horror in this movie which i think this is a good horror movie for horror newbies but like a lot of the actual horror that happens in this movie are either the ghost kid fucking his world up which also is kind of unintentionally hilarious because it is just basically a kid beating the fuck out of Kiefer Sutherland yeah or the ghost dad because the ghost dad is more in your traditional ghost makeup he looks fucked up kind of thing so his like reveals are a little more like typical horror movie now this was something I was thinking about for all the people involved I feel like Julia Roberts was by far the most stressful because The rest of them were going in expecting something sort of... They didn't know what they were going to expect. Julia Roberts already has a predisposition to believe in the afterlife. And then she's hearing these wonderful stories from the other three that went before her. She's last. And then when she gets there, hers does not start out wonderful at all. Hers almost straight away goes into hell mode. Can you imagine her going into this being like, oh my god, mine is terrible. And she hasn't heard anything yet about everyone else's hellacious shit that's going on behind the scenes. So I thought that was an interesting dynamic there for her to have to face. That's a whole level of stress that she was facing. Well, again, each of them is dealing with a different trauma. Kiefer Sutherland caused the death of another kid unintentionally and it sounds like he never like he just kind of pushed that away and like moved on with his life and tried to continue on and like he could have warned all of them like granted 
Kiefer Sutherland was still kind of, I think, in a denial enough that like maybe like he wouldn't have really understood what was going on before Baldwin's character went under. But by the time Kevin Bacon and Julia Roberts are going to do it, he knows what's going on. He knows that some shit happens after you come back, but he doesn't tell them. And they even call him out on that. And again, that's his narcissism. I thought it was a great point. You brought up Jeff again. He thinks the only way he can get forgiveness from this ghost that's haunting him is by confronting in the afterlife. So he's going to kill himself again to like do it. Granted, he's going to make it a full suicide. He's fully intending to like end his life to do it. But then, like, you have Kevin Bacon, who is dealing with his past is, again, kind of oddly similar to Kiefer Sutherland's, but he's the atheist, he's the the non-believer, but then he has to kind of come to terms with, well, I don't know what this is, but I have to, like, figure this out. Julia Roberts, she's the one who doesn't have a sin, but she has a trauma, and she's holding on to that trauma. How many horror movies in general, and even religion and spirituality deal with, you kind of have to learn to cope with your trauma and like let things go and i think that's kind of the whole purpose for is again the only one who basically the only way his stuff ends is for him to get punished is baldwin rightfully so i mean Kiefer sutherland led to the death of a little boy but like somehow this movie still posits what baldwin is doing is the most scummy and fucked up out of all of them and he's yeah, the only one who yeah. never like gets forgiveness he just gets punished enough once his future marriages were and then that's that so it'd be interesting to see like what happens to his character going forward after all of this. Because if we want to talk about like theories of what happens after you die, I personally kind of think that there's some validity to the idea of you have to kind of confront the worst parts of yourself in those final moments. And I think that this movie kind of highlights that. Well, as a Catholic, I have certain ideas about a uh, purgatory, quote unquote purgatory, that this movie uh, sticks with me on certain things. But another thing that I found interesting, Kiefer Sutherland, I think it's Kevin Bacon's death scene, where uh, instead of Kiefer, after experiencing all of this trauma coming up to haunt him, he like goes further into it, just like he played light with that kid's death at the beginning. He's playing light with Kevin Bacon's life. He's sitting there just fooling around. And then I think that's the time that the, the fuse box, oh, that maybe that's Julia Roberts' death where the fuse box blows up and whatnot. But what I was going to say is I, I have noticed as a psychedelic therapist, the one major patient population I've seen where they come out with almost no healing are full-blown narcissistic personality disorder pa- patients. Now, those with some traits get a lot out of it. But those with full-blown narcissistic personality disorder almost act like Kiefer Sutherland was doing. It feeds their ego for whatever reason. And he just becomes even more entrenched in that. So what was the other thing you wanted to mention about the psychedelics with Kevin Bacon reference? So with the psychedelics, I was going to say the life review, that is something that people talk about on a psychedelic called Ibogaine. Um, And I've read a lot of anecdotal reports. And that is one thing that recurs repeatedly. These um, opioid addicts will take Ibogaine. And they basically talk about seeing something akin to a movie screen in front of their vision that plays all their previous experiences, the narcissistic choices that they made and decisions their addictions led to, and then replays what they should have done differently. And again, psychedelics will make you highly suggestible. So it may happen to one person and then it just promulgated further for other people. But Kevin Bacon at one point does mention, hey, this could just all be a chemical that makes death more palatable. At that time, there was still this theory that DMT, NNDMT, was this 
chemical that would either cause schizophrenia or this life after death experience or near death experience type of thing. So even back then, that theory was there with DMT. And that's what he was referencing was that. I'm pretty sure. You and I have had this conversation before, Jeff. You are still Christian, but I honestly, in my mind, I kind of see you a lot as a Christian mystic. Mind-altering substances are in some ways just tools for us to attune to higher planes of existence even in some ways. And I'm not meaning that like in any mocking tone. Like I think that's a really interesting idea of psychedelics because i mean especially in modern religions but throughout history like religions have used psychedelics for rituals and to basically talk to higher spirits or god or whatever i find that fascinating that it could still technically be the case in modern times so yeah that's why i think you're a christian mystic more than anything but we have talked about what your brain literally will create naturally like at the point of death based off of, again, near-death experiences and like how there's been a lot more research into that. I know more recently there was a study that kind of is terrifying. There is awareness, at least for like a certain amount of time after you're dead, you're aware that you're dead, which that was like a legit official study that came out. I remember that making the rounds online for a little bit and everyone's like, wow, okay, <laughs> have more bullshit to look forward to even when I'm dead. Yeah. Speaking of Dr. Rick Strassman, you probably saw or heard of the Netflix documentary and the book, DMT, The Spirit Molecule. He was like the OG yeah. modern day psychedelic researcher. And he and I are acquaintances. Like I got a chance to just go hang out with him one-on-one for a bit at his house in New Mexico when I was driving through and he and I have corresponded through email for years upon years, and he has all kinds of interesting theories, like really interesting theories. But we got into a big discussion about, uh, especially up in the upper echelons of psychedelic research, you'll find a lot of people ascribe to some sort of spiritual belief, you know, whether it be Judaism, Christianity, Islam, whatever. And there are two different camps. There is the neurotheological belief and the theoneurological belief being either this stuff is all just a bunch of hoopla being, you know, the brain is making this chemical and it causes us to have some sort of experience. Or is this put here by whatever being creator or whatever that allows us to access a gateway that normally we cannot access, you know, and how do you prove that? Who the, who the hell knows? But that is a big discussion amongst uh, certain people in the psychedelic community. Well, and quick aside, since you brought up DMT, the spirit molecule, that also uh, one of the book covers, I think maybe the main book cover for it. And I I said Alex Ross. I meant Alex Gray earlier. Like, Oh, yeah, Alex. That's who I thought you were talking about, Alex Gray. But Alex Gray did the artwork. He's the guy who does all the tool album art, but he did the artwork for DMT, the spirit molecule book cover. He's the one who I think has like a painting where it's like a skull and a baby fetus in the skull yeah but yeah alex gray's work is very much blending that idea of spirituality and mind-altering substances into literal artwork and like his artwork is otherworldly oh it is yeah what you could imagine like whatever happens beyond death or like higher planes of consciousness it's a very shadowy representation i mean about as good as you can do on a canvas of kind of what you see but yeah another total tangent what did you guys think about the uh insults that the girl that kevin bacon was uh being bullied by i mean no he bullied her and then she started bullying him on the train what did you think about uh, her string of insults Hey, Felicio! Do I know you? You don't know jack shit! Burt Watt, Needle Dick, Cogbite, Jagoff, Limp Brisk, Coral Hole, Banana Breath, Chip Burt, Burt Turn Turn Face, Kiss Ass Brown Nose Macho Wimp, Limp Dick, Bar Face Turn Merchant, What's the matter gonna cry? Come to cry, baby Davy. 
cry, cry, cry. Shit face, right her ass licking, son of a bitch. I feel like they didn't even give her a script. They were just like, hey, go in there and say whatever the hell you want. <laughs> so they had to have given her a script because let's be real. Kids are smart, but kids are not that smart. I don't know. His fucking character's name is Labratio. Fellatio. And one of the insults that she hurls at him is Fellatio. (laughs) And I love how he just sits there. She's dunking on his ass, and he just like is he, yeah, okay, huh? And he takes it. And then after the vision ends, he's just like, oh, oh." it's just like you got fucking dunked on, bro. Yeah, that was awesome. And that Halloween party they had kind of reminded me of some of our Pokeween parties. Holy crap. When that that. scene was happening, I texted Aaron. I'm like, first of all, like, where's the security? Because I mentioned security once. Like, oh, there's security in this refurbished museum, church, whatever the fuck this is that we're doing. Security never is a problem, apparently. They can just come and go as they please. They can break in here as they please. There is no security. But then not even the cops are called with like a giant raging bonfire in front of this place and like yeah. a bunch of people running around like in costume around this bonfire. Those costumes were cool, though. They were pretty rad. Yeah. I thought those were pretty amazing costumes. <laughs> well, they're all like mismatched because it was like angel wings, skull head, tits out. Just <laughs> what is this? <laughs> and, and since this is Joel Schumacher, because this came out in 1990. His Batman movies came out after this. Batman and Robin was 97. Forever was yes. 94, 95. 95, yeah. And I do think this movie is a lot more grounded in that like it's more personal than those movies are. But there is elements of those films in this between the neon stylistic indoors, the modern gothic artwork that's fucking everywhere, and then this scene where like, these random people in costume having a bonfire party in front of like an abandoned museum nightclub church that feels like oh this is like the joker's gang having a fucking like midnight party in the middle of the streets i'm sure aaron you'll get into more of this with the actual production and schumacher's style let's kind of transition there so like i mentioned earlier I am definitely an apologist for schumacher i think his movies are very compelling propulsive and visually stylish enough to keep you interested and watching just for that i agree with you aaron like i find schumacher ultimately fascinating flawed but absolutely fascinating and i miss him like i miss him since he just passed i mean we clown on batman forever and batman and robin but like how much do we actually quote those movies and love them now not just that not just that my fucking hot take is i will take Batman Forever and Batman and Robin over any of the fucking current DCEU shit any day of the week. Completely agree with you. I think they're better movies than anything the Snyderverse produced. Absolutely. I agree with that. I agree with that. Let's be real. The problem with those movies is less Schumacher because, frankly, he executes really well on the script that he was given. There was definitely pressure from Warner Brothers and the toy companies to like make the movie more family friendly and toyetic but let's be real the fault of those movies really lies at the feet of Akiva Goldsman who wrote the fucking Dan Brown movies the Dark Tower movie from a couple of years ago and some Transformers movies and a lot of those YA insurgent divergent fifth wave stuff that were all kind of riffing on Hunger Games at the time Goldsman is the problem here, less so Schumacher. Schumacher made a fucking insane movie 
but one that like has crazy costumes and amazing sets. Go back and watch those movies now. It is mind-boggling how good those sets are compared to shit we have now that is basically all green screen. Yeah. Right? It is fucking buck wild to go and look at the Gotham diamond slash dinosaur exhibit that they break into at the beginning of Batman and Robin where there's lights and smoke and all this crazy bullshit. They don't do stuff like that anymore. There's crazy gothic towers and art deco heads popping out of buildings and shit. And a lot of that shows up in flatliners. There's stuff like, again, their temple, cathedral, library, museum that they fucking do all these clandestine medical experiments at. There is a giant head statue, a fucking head of Mercury just sitting off to the side, right? Like, why? Why the fuck is that there other than (laughs) because we can, because it looks cool because it gives this movie some, like, interesting visual flair, right? That's just so baked into Schumacher as a director. I mean, the guy went to Parsons. He worked as a designer and a window dresser for Macy's in New York City before he got into film via costuming and set design. Like, that's how he got into film. So that's all been a huge, big part of all of his stuff. He specifically wanted this movie to look like a gothic fable. None of this was accidental. He did not care at all to have a grounded, realistic, actual medical, like sterile kind of environment where everything makes sense. He wanted it to feel like fucking Frankenstein. It's very purposeful. All the allusions to like heaven and hell are all over the place. Yeah, that seems very almost on the nose. All these fucking Dutch masters paintings everywhere of God and Mercury and Prometheus. All that shit is wild. I love the grates in the floor that connect directly to the boiler and just have orange steam coming out of them at all times. All that shit looks so fucking cool. I don't care what anybody says. The alleyway where the like Chinese bodega is where there's just steam coming out of every manhole and there's green fucking lights everywhere. Just all that visually looks cool in a fucking way that we just don't do anymore because why, right? Like, I love the fact that it just, it looks like a movie. It looks like you're watching this kind of over-the-top theatrical kind of thing. I mean, that's what's entertaining about this. It doesn't feel... Like you're just watching a bunch of med students do bullshit. So this movie did for me kind of what the the book Dracula did for me. The first time I, I read Dracula, I hated it. And then I read it again for some reason a year later, and I loved it. And it's like it had to yeah. marinate. And for this movie, I was kind of like day one. First time I watched it, I was like, you know what? I'm not sure how I feel about it. It's okay. And then as I, it sat with me for a little bit, I was like, no, I actually really liked this movie a lot. It yeah. just had to yeah. sit with me for a little bit. And to that point, I didn't really like touch on more of like how this affected me there were moments where i and more so after i watched it where i got like a little teary-eyed just kind of thinking about some of the ideas that this movie posits because again i like i was witness to death as a nurse and it fucking sucked and like even if it's just a visualization in this weird joel schumacher movie and, and this is a theme that i think this movie does tackle of what if it isn't all just chaos like i think a lot of existence is chaos and and just randomness but like what if there is just something more out there to beyond us and not that i think it should dictate how we live our lives here 
But like, I'd like to think that there is some kind of peace at the end of all of this. That's kind of what I was feeling after watching this movie. And that's why I think this movie is effective even after viewing it, at least for me. Sure. Yeah, good luck following that, bud. <laughs> I'll edit <laughs> d- 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 that. Deal with that, no, you know. Don't edit that out. Just continue talking about production. <laughs> yeah, I buried my soul, asshole. Go on. <laughs> anyway, so like I kind of mentioned earlier, Peter Filardi wrote this. This was after he wrote one episode of MacGyver, apparently. He wrote this movie. Like I mentioned, he also wrote The Craft. He wrote Ricky Six, which I mentioned earlier. And then in the 2000s, he actually kind of gets into some Stephen King shit. What a wild career. Yeah. He does the Salem's Lot TV miniseries with Rob Lowe. Weird that we go back to Rob Lowe again. Yeah. He does an episode of Nightmares and Dreamscapes, which coincidentally we've relatively brought up. Brought yeah, up. Yeah. He did the episode that was The Road Virus Heads North. And then he did Chapelweight which is the weird prequel series to Salem's Lot that is on like stars or some weird shit right now. He did a ton of research on people's accounts of their near-death experiences, including an account from a friend of his who nearly died in surgery. So it was interesting that like he actually kind of went above and beyond a little more than you would expect for this kind of movie to kind of get some more accurate at least accurate to like what people are reporting, right? Yeah. Michael Douglas liked this script and he agreed to produce it because frankly, he was producing a shit ton of stuff. I mean, that's where he started, right? He like won an Oscar for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I'm kind of curious if Michael Douglas was interested in this because he worked on a movie in 1978 called Coma. That was a med student at some prestigious research hospital finds this conspiracy where they're artificially putting people into comas to do research and like, you know, they're getting more people than they should be or whatever. So I'm very curious if some of that leftover was just rolling around in Michael Douglas's head when this script came across him. Is that a horror movie? Because that sounds like a horror movie. It's like a thriller. Yeah, it's like a conspiracy thriller. Yeah. yeah. But there's a couple of very specific people involved with this movie that really kind of make this movie visually what it is. So the first person is Jan de Bont. He is a cinematographer. He did all of Verhoeven's early Dutch stuff. He did fucking Roar, that crazy movie I told you about where it's Tippi Hedren and her family just living with 70 fucking lions and tigers <laughs> yeah. in their house. Yeah. Jan de Bont was fucking scalped while making that movie. He did Cujo. He did Clan of the Cave Bear. He did Die Hard. He did Black Rain, Hunt for Red October, Basic Instincts. I mean, dude was pretty fucking solid cinematographer, but then he also directed Speed, Twister, and then Speed 2, and The Haunting, <laughs> and Lara Croft Tomb Raider. Lara Croft colon Tomb Raider hyphen The Cradle of Life. So Jan de Bont is a super interesting choice to shoot this movie. Again, we've talked about the lighting. I love that each person's hallucinations have their own distinct style. I really like when it switches to the grainy camcorder effect. Just there's something about that grainy, black and white, blasted out camcorder look, that super high contrast look that I really, really like the just idea of. Not only is it aesthetically the right choice for that character because he's the guy with the camera, but it also kind of makes his vision feel a little even more pornographic like something that 
you shouldn't necessarily be watching, almost like he's a peeping Tom. Because the camcorder effect is bad. That's yeah, the thing. Yeah, exactly. Do y'all remember, like, old camcorders at fucking all? Yeah. My family had a big shoulder VHS kachunk camcorder growing up, and it had five built-in video effects that you could cycle between, and one of which was a, like, super high-contrast, grainy black-and-white effect like that, which, to me, makes no sense why William Baldwin would be like, oh, yeah, cool, I want all my sex tapes to look like fucking Darren Aronofsky's pie, right? <laughs> like, that makes no sense to me, but it looks cool. Do you remember what brand of video recorder that was that your family had? JVC. JVC. Okay, we had the exact yep. same one, man. Yep, it had like a flip-down eyepiece uh-huh. and a battery pack that died after 30 minutes. It was like this big. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. I recorded all my skateboarding videos on that, that thing, man. Huge. The other person I'll bring up is Eugenio Zanetti. He was the production designer. He did The Last Action Hero. He did What Dreams May Come, which we mentioned yeah. earlier, that fucking Robin Williams movie. I think he won the Oscar that year. It was definitely nominated, but he might have won. He did. He won fucking production design for that movie. And he also did The Haunting. But the production design of this movie is also fucking crazy. Again, what is this fucking temple church that they're in? That has just plastic sheets and steam everywhere and everywhere, at least in the first chunk of the movie, there's like water reflections on the walls, right? It all looks like fucking Blade Runner. The interiors of the crazy like library church museum, that is all a set. The exterior where you see all the people doing the bonfire, that is the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago. The rest of the campus specifically that lake view in the opening scene, that helicopter shot with Sutherland standing on the rocks. That is Loyola University campus in Chicago. So like they actually shot in Chicago for two weeks or two weeks worth of shooting from like October to January. They had to probably take a bunch of breaks for like shutting down buildings and waiting for these schools to be closed in between and snow because it's fucking Chicago, right? But then they like moved to... Burbank, and the rest of it's just shot on sets. Stuff like the Chinatown Alley, Quickie Mart, the drug alley, the fucking tunnels that Sutherland's like running around. All that shit is really fucking visually cool. I mean, despite it being like very cliche and all stuff that would fit in his fucking Batman movies, it's all stuff that looks really pretty fucking cool. Well, it's a little different from the Batman movies in that it's more treated, again, like a horror movie in those scenes. So it's more frantic. It feels more enclosed. Yeah. Going back to like you said they shot in that museum or the outside of it, at least in the canon of the movie. Is that supposed to just be like a museum under renovation or is that part of the campus or like it's supposed to be this other part of the campus that's just under renovation or something? Why the fuck is it filled with all this goth artwork? Then (laughs) Exactly. Well, I mean, even the building that they're actually taking classes in the like, yeah, theater where they have all the corpses that they're doing the dissections and even that room is covered in all these fucking old masters paintings right again 90s mixing this weird 
gothic Roman Catholic artwork with nightclub aesthetic. Like that, it was just yeah. in so many '90s movies. The only thing that they were missing, honestly, Techno? were candelabras everywhere. Yeah, and then doves. There just needed to like be loose pigeons flying around, shitting everywhere. A little bit more like, yeah, let's put on some fucking tunes before we go under. They needed more prodigy. Smack that bitch up. Yeah, speaking of music, so James Newton Howard did the score for this. Weirdly enough, he would also then do Pretty Woman the same year with Julie Roberts as well. Dying Young the next year with Julie Roberts, which Schumacher also directed. I'm not even going to go through all of his fucking credits. James Newton Howard has done everything from like weepy shit like Dying Young to the fucking Nolan Batman movies. Like, dude has an insane body of work has been nominated for nine Academy Awards and has not won one yet. So yeah, he has definitely got an insane body of work. And I love that late 80s guitar sound. delayed flangey kind of sound that early nine inch nails had a lot of it just makes me think of mid 90s industrial shit i love the sound of the score for this it's great and frankly it's way better than the fucking we all fall over and over and over that you hear in like the lost boys <laughs> I, agreed. I did not care for that at all yeah jeff you mentioned that aesthetically like this is your favorite would you live in Kiefer sutherland's apartment from this movie i would fucking Absolutely live in that apartment are you kidding I me i wouldn't that's so fucking obnoxious to me the neon lighting would give me a headache i would actually like put furniture in that place well yeah that's what it yeah. you mean as is sure no as is yeah the floor lighting is cool but like it would give me a headache if that was the only fucking source of light. <laughs> no, dude, that place is great. I'm a minimalist. You don't need too much stuff. You don't need to be burning out your eyes with these bright lights. I mean, it's it's perfect. Do you wish you went to med school and that goth as fuck statues and paintings of God and hell and angels? Absolutely. <laughs> dude, Loyola had a badass. I mean, yeah, that was a cool, a cool looking place, man. As far as like places that are close to like the med school is, Loyola is close because it is so ingratiated yeah. with Loyola. In New Orleans, yes, is what you mean, yeah. right? Yes, yeah, not the Loyola University that is in Chicago that they shot at. Yeah, yeah, no, Loyola, New Orleans. There's so much Roman Catholic imagery. Yeah. in that school. Yeah, as far as the cast goes, dude, the cast is insane, fucking yeah. insane. Yeah, the, in cast, is the nuts. cast is amazing. It is. I didn't realize the star power that was in this movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's also kind of the other reason why this movie was very successful because all of these people were like really hitting around this time so julie roberts and Kiefer sutherland started dating during production they got engaged and famously julia roberts fucking left him for lyle lovett gotta love it <laughs> Kiefer sutherland been in so much shit don't really have to go through his filmography i love though that he cannot fucking help 
putting off villain vibes. Just seeing him in the beginning wearing all black slacks and like a tucked in fucking turtleneck sweater with a trench coat and those little glasses. Tell me that's not a fucking villain if you've ever seen it's one. It's a good day to die. Yeah. Yeah. He looks more like a vampire in that scene than he actually looks like a vampire in Lost Boys where he is a vampire. <laughs> I think the first time we ever mentioned Kiefer Sutherland on our podcast was Twin Peaks Firewalk with me because he has a, a bit part in that. Yeah. Val Kilmer supposedly turned down this role. I can't see Val Kilmer even back then in this uh, role. I kind of could. There's something about Kiefer like committing to the bit when he's getting fucking decimated by the little kid ghost that works in this movie for me because <laughs> he is like screaming yeah. no and before the kid hits him with a fucking wrench <laughs> that part legitimately made me laugh i could see val doing it but i think Kiefer is a better choice yeah and pretty famously kilmer and schumacher did not fucking get along while they were making batman kilmer apparently didn't get along with fucking anybody during this part of his career there is a fucking hilarious schumacher quote about Val Kilmer specifically that was like there he was like I had two amazing days making Batman Forever the first day was when I found out that I was casting Val Kilmer as Batman the second day was when he did some bullshit where I could fire him and then I would never have to work with him ever again <laughs> like they had Damn, some kind of fucking crap. beef that's so cold <laughs> would have been interesting if Val Kilmer was in this movie and then burned his chance to be Batman and somebody completely different was Batman later Weird aside, too, about Kiefer Sutherland, another weird fucking horror movie I associate with him that I, I know is a bad horror movie is a m- movie Mirrors from 2008, yes. all about haunted mirrors. Yeah. Sutherland would go on to work with Schumacher pretty consistently. Obviously, he's in Lost Boys. After Flatliners, he's in A Time to Kill, Phone Booth, and then 12, which 12 I have not seen. That's one of the blind spots I have of his. Julia Roberts as well, not even going to bother talking about her filmography, just other than before this movie, she had popped in Mystic Pizza and Steel Magnolias the year before. So she did two pretty big movies for her career right before this. And then the same year, she's also in Pretty Woman. And then right after this, she did Sleeping with the Enemy and Dying Young. So I mean, she had a crazy fucking three or four years right there. Nicole Kidman was supposedly offered this role. Could have been interesting. Yeah. Also has really big, curly, messy hair around this time, which uh, let's just say your boy is, uh, that's uh, mm, that's my fetish, is, is <laughs> fucking what's his name from Scooby-Doo says. All the dudes in this movie are shamelessly hitting on her. Oh, absolutely. And my response to you was, are you fucking kidding No, me? I get it. But like William Baldwin yeah. literally walks up to her and is basically like, hey, you want to fuck? fuck? Yeah. <laughs> That's where it was like, okay. I think this is her prettiest role. I think she looks the best in this movie of any movie, personally. Yeah. And, and frankly, let's be honest, Kiefer Sutherland dude, dude. looking pretty good in this movie. Aww. Kevin Bacon, Kevin Bacon despite his like weird shaggy mullet hair, hey. looking pretty good in this movie. Dude, he pulled off the look really well. This movie's full of good looking people. But yeah, Julia Roberts is wildly attractive in this movie. And I think I jokingly told you, If I were within 10 feet of her at this time, yeah, I would also be Jim Carrey as the mask TM in Awuga wolf face eyes rolling out kind of mode, right? But I don't think you'd be going up to her like Baldwin and be like, you want to fuck? Oh, no, I would be fucking terrified. (laughs) I would be the intimidated piece of shit that I am. Yeah. 
Anyway, Kevin Bacon, also in this movie, don't have to go through his filmography. Kevin Bacon, been in a lot of horror stuff, which is kind of interesting, and he's continuing to be in a lot of horror stuff. Most notably, again, this is going to date this episode, but they just put out the cast for Ty West's third X movie, Maxine, and uh, Kevin Bacon's going to be in that movie. If you want to hear more about Kevin Bacon, we covered him on our Tremors episode in the past, so go check that episode out. Yep, I think we talked more about his career in that episode. Yeah. Oliver Platt is Randy Steckel. Steckel. He's in also a good bit of horror stuff. As far as choosing not to do it, I would be like him. I'm glad y'all are having these otherworldly experiences that are changing your worldview. I'll take your word for it. I'm not going under. Yeah. Because I'll be the one that dies. I would just (laughs) do drugs. Let's be real. I don't want to like give myself clinical brain death just for shits. So, Jeff, you might be the only one of the three of us, at least, that would pull that trigger. I think during that time period of my life uh, in med school, like the first (laughs) couple years, I absolutely would have been like Kiefer's character. Yeah, we would joke about it, but there was always that nugget of truth in your voice about like, yeah, I would commit ego death to touch the face of God. I did attempt to get people to do ECT on me and they wouldn't do it. (laughs) I mean, I would do that. That's different. That's not quite the same thing. Oh, no, I'll do literal death to touch the face of god is what i meant not necessarily ego death yeah (laughs) of course we got william baldwin one of the lesser baldwins (laughs) the lesser baldwins yeah i think (laughs) the people that i kind of want to highlight because this is always my favorite shit when we're talking about the cast the like character actor people in this and for a lot of these people this is like their first roles so hope davis which jeff you mentioned her earlier she is Anne. William Baldwin's character's fiance, right? This was her first role. She is in Home Alone the same year. She's in The Day Trippers, which is one of Greg Motola's, might be his first movie. Mumford, About Schmidt, American Splendor, The Weatherman, Synecdoche, New York. She is in the MCU. She is fucking Tony Stark's mom in Captain America Civil War. She's done a shit ton of TV. Right now, she's in succession, and the last season of that is going on where she is one of the featured side characters. Kimberly Scott plays Winnie, the girl who was bullied by Kevin Bacon, and he goes to her to, like, make amends. She is in James Cameron's The Abyss, which I had never, like, connected this in my head necessarily that it's the same character that shows up in so many of Schumacher's movies as well, because her look changes pretty hard from movie to movie. It's interesting to, like, see her in all these different movies and you would not necessarily think it's the same actress she's also in falling down she's in the client she's in batman forever and batman robin playing different characters like schumacher liked working with her clearly she was also on the commish just a lot of tv patricia belcher who was the head nurse in this movie this was her first role she is one of those that gal actresses that has been in a shit ton of stuff as well. Tons and tons of TV. Is she the one that at the beginning with Julia Roberts, she's like, good morning. Yes. Yeah. She's the older head nurse lady, right? Okay. Some horror stuff specifically, because again, her filmography, she has like 200 fucking credits. So I just picked out some horror stuff. She's in Species. She's in Lawnmower Man 2, which we brought up <laughs> recently. <laughs> yep. Jeepers Creepers. She is in the number 23, once again, working with Schumacher. The Dark House. And she was just in Ant-Man Quantumania. And then lastly, which Jeff, you also brought her up, Beth Grant, mm-hmm. who plays the like patient at the beginning that's talking about her life experience. Beth Grant is also one of those people that you have seen in so much shit and just didn't realize that she has 
240 credits on her IMDb, mostly TV, but she has been in Rain Man, Child's Play 2, The Dark Half, Speed, Safe, A Time to Kill. She is the, like, sparkle magic, crazy cheerleader teacher lady in Donnie Darko, which is where most people our age will know her from. Now, as their coach, I was the obvious choice to chaperone them on their trip. But, but now you can't go. Yes. Hmm. Now, believe me, of all the other mothers, I would never dream of asking you, but none of the other mothers are available to go. I don't know, Kitty. It's a bad weekend. Eddie's in New York. Rose, I don't know if you realize what an opportunity this is for our daughters. This has been a dream of Samantha's and, and all of ours for a long time. I made her lead dancer. Sometimes I doubt your commitment to Sparkle Motion. She's also a Magic Man, Little Miss Sunshine, Southland Tales, No Country for Old Men, Jackie, and Willie's Wonderland that you mentioned earlier, yeah. the Nick Cage yeah. movie. And Child's Play 2, is she the teacher that yes. Chucky kills in like the closet? Yes. Yeah, I, rem- I remember seeing her. Glad that that also like, burned in your brain. Yeah, that was like one of those weird Child's Play kills. Because, like, he stabs her with something, she's on the ground, and then he has a ruler, and it's implied that he's going to, like, beat the fuck out of her with a ruler, and then yeah. she's killed off screen. I always like her because she she is very unique in the fact that she just looks like she lives in a trailer, but she's a great actress, but she just looks like she's come out of a trailer from a southern trailer park. She quite often plays that exact character, too. Yeah. I love seeing her pop up and stuff. This movie had a $26 million budget, which, in hindsight, for a horror movie, even with these stars, is kind of fucking nuts. It's wild that movies like this got made with this kind of budget. That just rarely happens anymore. And this was in, like, fucking 1989 money. It debuted at number one in August 1990 when it came out. It grossed $61 million. So, did well. It was successful. Made its money. Roger Ebert gave it three stars. Cool. Like Jeff mentioned, there is a very unfortunate remake slash sequel from 2017. Okay. It's a remake. It's not a sequel. Kiefer Sutherland's in it. There is debate about that. Yeah. He plays a different character. Yeah. And there is some back and forth with the people who made the movie and fans about is he the same character and he is just under a different identity now supposedly that was baked into the script and that element got cut but that was the intention was that he was the same guy but then that just makes things messy because it doesn't make sense as to where the first movie lands ultimately like you said Niels Arden Oplev directed it Elliot Page Diego Luna Nina Dobrev They're all in it. So it was just cast of hot young people. I saw this out of weird masochism when it came out because it literally has like a 4% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. And I watched it just out of sheer what the fuck is this kind of bad. And it's it's bad. It's pretty bad. It's extremely repetitive. It's visually ugly. It is literally the opposite of this movie in every way. I don't like any of the characters, like their development. No. The most interesting to me was the frat guy, and he's not that interesting either. None of them are interesting at all whatsoever. No. And on top of that, I think they cut literally every single tie to the old movie. But like you said, I think they had intended to in the beginning. 
beginning, but I looked for the ties. I couldn't find a single thing that tied it to the old movie location. What it, like nothing tied it. Yeah, it was such a terrible movie. I have heard back and forth again from like various people who worked on the movie that at certain points one of the characters was supposed to be the child of one of the original characters, and that that got excised. Again, I've heard that Sutherland is playing the same character just under a different identity now, but that also doesn't really make any sense. I think it was just one of those. We didn't know what the fuck we were doing with this movie. We just had the name, let's roll with it kind of thing. Yeah. I don't know. It's bad. Don't watch it. Watch any of the other things that we recommended during recommendations. Yeah. Even happy birthday to me is way better than this. (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, yeah, that is about it as far as Flatliners goes. Guys, what happens after you die? I guess I'm going to be pushing a big rock up a hill for a few million years. Who knows? I'm totally just sitting here waiting because I'm expecting one of your patented dad jokes. I wanted to genuinely <laughs> ask, what are your opinions on death? Since we're dealing with a movie that tries to answer that question, I guess. We all turn into dirt. God, you're no fun. We all just become worm food and uh, we give back to the earth. God, you kill the fun and everything. Granted, this this came to my attention from the Wizard and the Bruiser podcast with Jake and Holden. They just did an episode on Keanu Reeves. I like Keanu Reeves' quote because, like, there was a moment where he was being interviewed by, like, Stephen Colbert on The Late Show or something. And Stephen Colbert was just kind of doing, you know, oh, let's ask the guy who everyone sees as, like, a guru, like, these hard hitting questions. So he, being funny, he's just like, Keanu Reeves, what do you think happens after we die? And Keanu floors him with just a genuine answer of, I know that the ones who love us will miss us. I love that answer. He just says that and then pauses. Stephen Colbert even is taken aback, like, Fuck, I wasn't ready for something like that profound and emotional. But yeah, I personally am a hopeful agnostic, so... I'm going to see you guys in purgatory. Don't worry about it. I think there's something more to it. I don't know what it is, and I don't necessarily let it dictate how I live my life, but I... I, That's the ultimate trip, man. (laughs) It was a good day to podcast, guys. It was a good day to podcast. It was not a good day to die. It was not a good day to podcast. Great last line, Kiefer. (laughs) All right, cool. Well, I think that is going to be it for this discussion of Flatliners. Jeff, thank you for bringing this one on, and uh, thanks for being with us and chatting through this. I had a lot of fun yeah. revisiting this one and talking through it with you guys. And fun as always. Can't wait for you to come back on, and let's get into some weird shit again. Well, um, in the middle of the podcast, you have a new uh, patron subscriber, which is me, and that's brought to you by the great people at Spindrift. <laughs> Thanks, yeah. Jeff. So speaking of that, we are Watch Your Dare Horror Movie Podcast, hosted by me, Derek the Coward, and my movie monster boy co-host, Aaron. And yeah, we're on Patreon now, patreon.com forward slash watch if you dare for only five bucks for a cup of coffee for one beer at the bar a month, you get access to bonus episodes and any uh, posts we throw up there we will depending on how the patreon goes we will possibly in the future add other tiers we're starting simple uh, we've had a couple people ask about t-shirts so you know we may we may look into in the future but yeah we want to start simple so for right now it's just five dollars a month and you get bonus episodes so please consider contributing to us and helping keep our show ad free and help us upkeep with costs on uh, Riverside for recording and Podbean for hosting. Um, It really helps us. Thank you to our people already supporting us on there. We are on all the podcatchers and we will remain ad-free. So follow us, listen to us on Apple, uh, Podbean, Stitcher, Google, wherever you get your podcast, Spotify. 
please continue to rate, review, and follow us, especially on Apple, Spotify, Podchaser, Good Pods. That's where we get most of our reviews. Five stars on iTunes, especially, please. Thank you. That really helps. Thank you to your little brother, Aaron, Jesse Mansfield, for the bumps at the beginning and end of each episode, including our Patreon episodes. You can find his work at Partygator on Bandcamp. He is also part of Opossums and Big Clown and a bunch of other music groups. Speaking of music, it's no longer pinned at the top of our Twitter. Our Patreon is now pinned at the top of our Twitter, but it is pinned at the top of our Facebook page, and you can find this on our Podbean website. Uh, It's our Spotify music playlist filled with all kinds of spooky tunes. So check that out if you want some spooky music. Is there anything else you want to add, Aaron? Philosophy failed. Religion failed. Now it's up to Sally.